I just want to assure you again that you do not need to worry about this. Seriously, do not. Truly never think about it again as long as you live. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is comics critic Zoe Tunnell. Zoe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Recovering from illness. Yeah, you were sick. Yeah. I also got sick recently, and it was like oh, I forgot that this is a thing that normally happens yeah. to people when you don't walk around wearing a mask. I haven't been sick in like two years. So I was just like, oh my God, this sucks. Why does this happen? <laughs> See, I get colds and stuff a lot. It's just that for the last year, I didn't. Weird. Wonder what happened this year. Right. It was just yeah. like very shocking suddenly to be sick again in like a normal way. But I have recovered and so have you. Thrilling because I didn't want you to have a sore throat or anything while we were no, doing the pod. I would, I would never go on the internet with a like sore scratchy throat. I would rather <laughs> die. Yeah, not my favorite thing to do either. This episode is probably coming to you guys a little bit later than I thought it would because my long-awaited 20 years late bar mitzvah was this past weekend. I've been talking about it on the show from the beginning, I guess. And because I started, I sort of had two pandemic projects, which was like, I'm starting a podcast and like, mm, I should probably like officially do this Jew thing finally. So it's all done now, which means my free time has opened up enormously. It also means that last week I, I was literally like running around on fire. I like was so, it was like, it's coming. I don't know what I, I don't know what to do. I to, what am I doing? I didn't have the location secured until like it was all wow. like, well, because we were like, is the synagogue open? The answer mm -hmm. was no. So it was like, we ended up doing it at my rabbi's apartment, which was oh. really nice. Well, still, nice. hey, can, is it appropriate to say congratulations or mazel tov? You can say either. Okay. That's what it means. So uh, Yeah, you know, I, I just, I didn't want to like be like. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like, yeah. Please accept like Gentile in English. Congratulations. But no. Yes, exactly. Enjoy praise of all kinds in all languages. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, It was a lot of work. It's like not sinking in yet that I'm done because it was it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a friend who before we became friends, she converted as an adult and mm -hmm. she's told me a few things. I was just like, wow. Yeah, that's the thing is like technically by reform standards, I was already Jewish. But just to feel like personally secure, mm -hmm. I did actually the full conversion process mm -hmm. like I did everything. Just so that if anybody wants to give me a hard time about it, I could be like... You got the credentials. Yeah, yeah, like, don't start with me. But yeah, it's a lot of work. It took me, like, I guess, like, a year and a half. It's been a minute. So, yeah. Um, so I'm glad to be done, and I'm glad to be here today with you to talk about Samuel Guthrie, Cannonball, famously nigh invulnerable when he's blasting. Only when he's blasting, though. Only when he's blasting and only nigh invulnerable. Yeah. I actually, in when I put out the call for questions, I said invulnerable when he's blasting. Someone was like, excuse me, he's not. I was like, I ran out of characters. Come on. You know, you know that. I like, knew I needed yeah. to find, I needed to find those characters uh, because. People are going to jump down your throat if you don't say nigh. I know. I know. Well, that much vaunted quote is probably the thing most people know about Cannonball. I threw in a vaunted there for the Claremont heads. <laughs> 
But he's actually a character with a very long and complicated history, in part because in the 90s, he was the new mutant who graduated to the X-Men. Yeah. It was a pretty big deal. So in the 90s, he got a pretty massive push as a mm-hmm. character under Labdell, also sort of in like the Siegel and Kelly stuff for a bit. Then he kind of just fell off, though. And yeah, it's he, interesting. He, he went back to like X-Force for a bit and like Peter retired to a farm. Yeah, yeah. like only to be he only went back to X-Force to be upset that Beto and Tabby were hooking mm-hmm. up. Like, And then he was back for the Pete Wisdom era that lasts about mm-hmm. 10 issues before Ellis is off the book and they do the Milligan relaunch. And then when they bring X-Force back, it's this very different book. It's the yep. Black Ops book that we're all familiar with now. Sam doesn't make the jump to that because Claremont picked him up. Like, it basically, he's one of those characters where there's nothing particularly, and I'm sure that you'll change my mind by the end of this episode. Damn right I will. There's nothing particularly unique about Cannonball as a member of the X-Men, except maybe for the class-conscious stuff that Mm -hmm. Claremont did with him in the 80s, and I think that by the 90s, that was mostly kind of... Definitely backgrounded. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to have him on your X-Men team... It's because you're a big fan pre-existing of the character at this point. So, like, obviously, Claremont loves him. He's going to bring him back if Claremont's writing something. Mike Carey clearly was fond of the character and used the character in his run. Hickman. And I was going to say, and then, yeah, yeah, most famously recently, Jonathan Hickman made him an Avenger because Mm -hmm. he loves Cannonball and Sunspot. But one thing that's interesting there is that Hickman kind of did that thing that creators sometimes do with their favorite characters where they give them the happy ending and then what does one do with the character, right? It's sort of like what Peter David did with Jamie Madrox, where Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I mean, this is a much less fraught marriage, let's say. Yeah, there's much less baggage here. (laughs) But, you know, it's uh, similarly married with a kid, Mm -hmm. retired, And so then if you want to bring him back, it's kind of a whole exercise. Because you don't want to you don't want to get rid of Izzy because that's unfair to her character. Right. And you don't want to fridge the wife. You don't want to, you know, like there's just all kinds of things you don't want to do. Plus, like she's a Hickman creation. So I don't think Hickman wants to get rid of her. I like Izzy. She's a good character. He's obviously fond of the character as well. So what's going to be interesting to see with this character, I think, and with Sunspot is how they develop in the next year or so to come because I do think that Hickman is positioning them in Shi'ar space for what obviously seems like a plot mm-hmm. that is building we just haven't seen it yet and now we have sword in the mix so correct like, yeah. and space is obviously a big concern space is the place yeah I mean Hickman is a huge Legion of Superheroes fan you've got Hickman and Al Ewing doing big big things in Marvel Mm -hmm. space, Marvel Cosmic right now. So I think that whereas even a year ago, oh, he's in space with his wife was a comics limbo place to be. Suddenly being one of the X-Men who's in space is actually a somewhat enviable position. And it's also like, I think people forget, like, because Ewing is doing such incredible... Guardians and Sword are two of my favorite books. Fantastic books. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's one of my favorite contemporary oh, 100%. writers. He's like, just genius. I, I cannot think of the last thing he wrote that was just a miss. Where me. I was like, that sucks, yeah. right? Like, that's not something I usually run into with him. No. Um, but... <laughs> I think people forget because it was during a, a kind of a downswing. It was like the post-Civil War to or like post-Secret Wars slump. Ewing wrote 
uh, Beto and Sam himself. In U.S. Avengers. U.S. Yeah. Avengers and New Avengers. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I definitely think with Hickman and Ewing... They both love those characters. There's no way they don't come in in some big fashion. Yeah. So it's been fun to do these two episodes, Sunspot and Cannonball, back-to-back, because they really are paired characters. If I can get my ass together in the edit, I'm going to see if maybe I can put them out in the same week, because I think that would be cool. cute. You know, so I'm going to see if I can do it, but I'll have to have a, like a real strict turnaround mm. as soon as we're done. But before we get too deep into the weeds or the hay seeds or whatever, Boo. I'm just, I don't know what, quite honestly, gun to my head, what's the foliage like in Kentucky? I could not tell you. Uh, bluegrass. Oh, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, yes. Okay. So before we get too far into the bluegrass with Sam Guthrie, I'd love to talk a little bit about you, your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to love this franchise, how you came to love this character to the point where when I asked you months ago, Mm -hmm. would you like to come on the show? You were like, I want Cannonball instantly. And I was like, okay, cool. Whenever anybody knows immediately Mm -hmm. who they want to do, that's when I'm like, I want to hear the tale. So, X-Men is a weird spot for me, because I've loved comics since I was, like, 12, 13. Um, I turned 30 this year. Oh, welcome. Yeah, I know. I prefer the 30s. I'm enjoying them. Every, everyone's fun. saying that, and, like, I'm sure I will once I'm in them, but now I'm just, like, my youth. I had a complete nervous breakdown for mm. much of 29, because I was like, I haven't accomplished the things I wanted to accomplish in my 20s just yet. Although, you've accomplished a lot in your 20s, it's especially been, in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's been wild. I found myself thinking that, like, you know, I was like, oh, I haven't done enough mm-hmm. at 29. And then once I was 30, I was like, oh, my early 30s. Suddenly there's a whole decade like opening up in it front of me. It turns out it's fine. Yeah. yeah, I haven't done anything yet because I'm young. It's fine. You know, like there's something about the second number that does get psychologically draining. I was of the perfect age for my gateway into comics being the ultimate universe. Ah. Um, which meant X-Men were not my favorite because no. X-Men is garbage. It's not great. It's terrible. Um, I even like, I liked it at the time because I didn't know any better. Right. And then I tried to revisit it a few years ago and I was like, oh, this is just the dirt worst. This is terrible. It's like, and I haven't read it in like 15 years, so I may be giving it too much credit. I'm not a big Mark Miller person. We just don't vibe. Yeah. I remember thinking that the first couple arcs were pretty decent and then that it drives off a cliff really profoundly. By the end of like issue five, he has George W. Bush naked on the White House lawn licking Magneto's boot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, you are really trying to do something here. And particularly when I was enjoying Morrison so much at the time, and frankly, Extreme X-Men. Yeah. Claremont was back and it was pretty good. And I was like, great, you know? I'm actually reading Extreme right now because Valentine has been yelling at me to read Extreme X-Men. So, Well, if anyone's going to tell you to read Extreme X-Men, it would be friend of the pod, Valentine Smith. Yeah, the world's biggest Extreme X-Men fan, I think. It's an essential sage reading. They turned me into a sage fan. Yeah. I will say that having Valentine on the podcast was a real treat. It was a really unexpectedly popular episode because I don't think of Sage as like an enormously popular character, but something about the passion that we both had for like, this character's actually cool, guys. We swear to God, like it did come through. It works. It worked on me, so. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, so Morrison and Extreme were coming out and they were like, good and x-men hadn't been good in like a long time so it was like this is really exciting and then ultimate was happening and i was like 
so you were reading, I assume, like Ultimate Spider Man, Spider Man, and yeah, um, and that brought me eventually into the main Marvel universe. But even then, I was reading like Immortal Iron Fist, Incredible Hercules. Yeah, you're rocking the Iron Fist tattoo, right? Yeah, there. yeah, I got it right here. Side note about that. I got that just before they announced the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I was in when they revealed they changed the logo for the TV show. I was just like, <laughs> this sucks. I got the tattoo and you're changing it. This, And now I'm just like, and I dodged. now you're thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I dodged a bullet. <laughs> Love that for you. Comics only. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much body. so. And so over the years, I had enjoyed X-Men. I saw the movies. I loved X-Men Evolution, which I think is due for a serious reevaluation in terms of like how influential and good that show is. Yeah, I never got into it. I think I was just a little too old, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then also, I've said this before, like the character age relationships felt so off it's to especially, me. Especially, yeah, if you're coming If you're a comics it, fan, yeah. I just found it like Scott and Jean being like teens years younger than and Hank adult. and yeah. Storm. I just yeah. found it weird. I just couldn't quite get into it. But every episode I ever saw of it, I was like, this is pretty good, you yeah. know? And it definitely was enormously influential on the comics in terms of which characters got a push, in terms of the dramatic rise of X-23, which is a non-evolution fan, I found kind of distressing. (laughs) But like that, because I met her in NYX, not... Which is very different than evolution, yeah. Correct, yeah, so... But I never really got into X-Men until um, Schism, the the Mm -hmm. Regenesis split. Um, that's when I jump, really kind of jumped on board. And my first one that I really followed was Wolverine and the X-Men, which I still have fondness for just out of pure nostalgia. But upon revisiting, I'm like, ooh, that comic has some warts. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't love it. I get why people do. It's a yeah. little wackier, I think. It's very I like wacky, my X-Men. Yeah. Like zany. And like, mm-hmm. I, like when I say, because I love a wacky plot, but I want it to be... I want the characters to take it seriously. I feel like I Aaron guess. has a sweet spot where he can really nail, like, bombastic, His ridiculous... Thor is great. Yeah, his Thor is one of my favorite runs. I love it to death. And I think he largely succeeds there when he tries to go for the ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But his X-Men kind of leans a little too hard. Particularly in that Decimation era mm-hmm. and, like, AVX and all of that, where the plot was so dark, I think yeah. it didn't it work clashed. for me. Yeah. I also just hate children, and so, like, the Hellfire villains were very they difficult They suck. For me. I, I'm bummed that they are back now. <laughs> I will say, like, I think there's no such thing necessarily as a bad character. True. And I appreciate when a writer takes, I mean, look at, well, I know you're not super fond of Way of X, but look at, you know, the idea of taking Onslaught, which is one of the worst plots ever, and doing something interesting with it. Way of X, I appreciate what it's going for. And I think Onslaught is like the most interesting, like, if you're going to take a big swing, take a big swing. That's the thing, right? That's about as big of a swing as you can take to be like, I'm going to do I'm going to do Onslaught and it's going to be good, I swear to God. I don't have a problem with that. And I love Jerry and I love Marauders. But I will say like the one thing where I'm always just like, I can't quite get there is those kids. I can't quite get there with the kids. But who knows? You know, again, I used to say like, I can't stand this character about other people. And then they'll just sneak up on you, you know? So you were in Aaron. That got you into the X-World. And I, I enjoyed it. Um, I read, you know, the Bendis uh, all-new era. Um, had, you know, enjoyed it. Like, wasn't, mm-hmm. like, in love with it. But I was like, you know, I'm having a decent time. I was, and 
I apologize, but I was like an Avengers gal. For when you came into comics, that yeah. makes sense because mm-hmm. Marvel was pushing them aggressively yep. and the X-Men got really buried for a long yeah. time. Even when they put Bendis on it, which is one of their biggest talents at the time, it was still like who the had revolutionized were Avengers. Getting, yeah. Correct. It's yeah. like we're still putting the Avengers over. We're putting the Inhumans over. It's- mm-hmm. And so what changed was obviously Hickman. I had loved his work on Avengers, Secret Warriors. So when they announced Hox Pox, I was like, okay. And I thought about it and I was just like, you know, one of my biggest blind spots with comics is Claremont's Mm X-Men. And so I sat down um, and decided I'm going to read all of the Claremont run before Hoxbox comes out. And I did not succeed because that's a lot. There's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I did finish it right before Dawn of X came out. Nice. And I... Here's a fun timeline. Um, That was about... (laughs) <laughs> you know, a little, uh, like, almost two years ago. Yeah. I have been out for almost two years. The Claremont to Queer Pipeline is extraordinarily real. Oh, yeah. I, it was, in a way, I was, I actually wrote an essay about this for WAWAC. Um, it's on Patreon. Go subscribe to the WAWAC Patreon. That's women writing about comics, if you're Correct. unfamiliar, listeners. Just won a second Eisner Award. Yeah, we did. And we can count this one. Congrats to Nola Fow and the rest of the team over there. They're all absolutely incredible. And so my big thing was, like, I was a shitty comics fan. I, like, loved the facts and, like, being able to be like, I know this character's whole history. And I can tell you who, like, I'm right. His power level is over 9,000, right? Yeah. And so going into Claremont, I was like, oh, well, I'm really enjoying this. This is good. And one of the things that I engaged in that now deeply ashamed about, but you know, at the time I was a jackass, um, was <laughs> casual by erasure of Kate and Yana. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had queer friends who were like, oh, those girls are gay as hell. And I was just like, no, Kate's with Colossus. Come on, duh. And uh, reading it, I was just like, oh, these girls are gay as hell. They're real gay. Oh, it's like the, the issue where uh, Kate climbs on top of Yana when she's in bed and tickles her so they fall through the floor. I'm just like, oh my god. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the camp where I think Ilyana's just a lesbian. Like mm-hmm. To me, it never is plot. Like, when she makes comments about boys, it always feels almost parodic. It's like yeah. Bobby's style, where it's like Bobby talking about girls. That's how it feels to me. I could, I could see It could go many number of yeah, ways. I, the I point see, is just like, yeah. those girls are into are each queer. other they and you queer. can tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that made me sit down and go like, okay, I was wrong about this. Like, objectively, these women are gay as hell. What else am I wrong about? <laughs> and the answer was, I'm a lesbian. Yeah, three months later... <laughs> Turns out I am also a woman and also gay. <laughs> You've had a really incredible couple of years. I mean, just as someone who like observes you on social media as like an internet mutual or whatever, it's just been nice to see you feeling more comfortable at work, feeling more comfortable in life, just like being, you know, happy. It feels wild. It's weird. You don't know how uncomfortable it is living in, like, skin that isn't your own until you're outside of it. Well, because how would you know? Yeah. You would just assume that's what everybody Exactly. Feels, and now I'm right? just like, oh, shit, is this what everyone else lived like, <laughs> like, for 28 years? This sucks. 
it's always interesting to see people on like the journey, like mm-hmm. the queer journey or the trans journey or the gay journey or whatever. Like, especially when it comes to them a little bit later. A lot of my friends have this experience of like, oh, I yeah. wish I had figured this out faster. On the other hand, though, there is something I think specifically beautiful about seeing someone who like took a little longer to get there just explode outward in like a very, you know, excited way. It's nice to see. Yeah, like if I transitioned earlier in life, I would have been a disaster. <laughs> it would there would have been wreckage. Um, it would have been terrible. As sad as it is to think about, like, oh man, I could have like gone to prom and worn a dress and that right. would have been cute. I'm like, oh no, I was terrible in high school. No one needed to deal with that. Fair enough. I mean, everybody is pretty terrible in high school. Is mm-hmm. my is my takeaway. But in any case. Congratulations to you, I guess. Thank you. There's like never an easy way to say like congrats on like finding your identity. But it's just I always am happy when I see someone living what seems to be their best self. You know what I mean? I'm trying my best. It's great fun and and speaks to these characters and to a lot of what we talk about in this podcast a lot that it was the Claremont X-Men that helped you sort of Mm -hmm. sort a lot of those feelings out. Yeah, like I I was honestly just, I'm just like how fucking like stereotypical queer comics fan could I get? Like, oh man. Sometimes things are cliche because they're true. Yeah. You know? So talking about Cannonball in this. Yes. How did you come around to Sam specifically? So before cannonball before like i actually read anything with cannonball i had seen him in like you know like x-men ads i was mm-hmm. i obsessively read cbr newsarama so like you know i was aware of the and i was always like he seems like he has cool powers i like his goggles sure yeah that was about my extent of cannonball and then hickman brought him into avengers and i was like oh shit this dude is cool and so is his buddy and i love them and they're idiots you know, that makes me happy because I remember speaking as an X-Men fan, like when that first happened, I was a little bit, I don't want to say irked, but I was like, those are our characters. Like, you know, <laughs> and then I thought about it and I was like, well, the X-Men books have been in such a rut for so mm-hmm. long. Maybe taking some of these characters to the Avengers will be good for them in the long run. Yeah. To hear that it did create new fans for them is a nice thing to know and to hear. I know tons of people who like Sunspot is one of their favorite characters specifically because of Avengers, Mm -hmm. New Avengers, what he went through. But with Sam, you know, I loved him through there and I thought like, I I think it was rushed, but his and Smasher's romance in Avengers is sweet. But then, you know, I read Claremont's run and that includes New Mutants, which is my favorite book of that era i would ride or die for new mutants right i was really captivated by cannonball because and here is my argument for what he brings unique to the x-men i think he is the single most well-adjusted member of the x-men defend your thesis (laughs) i think he has always had a good head on his shoulders he like his lowest points are like losing his brother Mm-hmm. coming to terms with the fact that he is not the leader they thought he was going to be. Mm-hmm. And even then, he his powers are very thematically appropriate because he just keeps on going. Yeah. He always takes that in stride. And where other characters get like weighed down by these like tortured moments and these pain, he just keeps on smiling. He just keeps on trying to be a good hero and a good family man. And that's that's his unique angle. He is the one genuinely happy, put-together person in a sea of giant messes. 
Thinking about it, it's interesting. I think why he maybe was not the one who ever jumped out at me most. Well, I mean, like, first of all, I just always gravitate toward the female characters. Yeah, I mean. So there's that. But, like, so does Chris Claremont. So I think that for me, part of it was, you're right, he doesn't really suffer in the same way. But Mm -hmm. that's because Claremont puts the characters he likes best through the ringer. That's, like, Claremont's thing is, like, I'm going to put you through hell because you're my favorite character. And because I think Sam is a character who he liked. But didn't love. Didn't love as much as he loved Danny and mm-hmm. Ilyana. You get sort of less plots that hinge on Sam in that original New Mutants run. Mm-hmm. He and Beto are kind of the least developed characters in that Claremont New Mutants run. Besides Sean, who's out in yeah, like, Sean is issues, like but, missing for a right for large most term. of it. Yeah, but they are the ones who sort of I think get the least amount of solo time, mm-hmm. and Beto at least gets the drama with his father. Whereas Sam, he has a good family life. Yeah, they love and support him. They're not doing so great necessarily financially or whatever, but they love him in a way that is rare in superhero comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very Mon Pa Kent, right? I yeah. said this also. Uh, a couple weeks ago about Monica Rambo, who has kind of a similar thing. But here it's even just like, we're down by the farm, like, yep. you know, and there's no pa. That's the thing about Sam. Mm-hmm. Like his tragedy, his big tragedy is in his past when the character's introduced. Yeah, like his his dad is already in the ground. And he's already been raising his siblings, yep. helping his mother. Like he is sort of the best adjusted because when he joins the team, he's already kind of been through an arc Mm -hmm. that we didn't get to see. Whereas Danny and Rain... They are raw, open wounds. Yeah, there's like still a lot going on with them that we need to dig into. And I think Roberto is the same way, but he keeps leaving the team. Yeah, (laughs) that dude will... if. If he he quits at the drop of a coin, hat. Yeah, yeah he he's like, I've got team. stuff to do, actually, right? Sam is in every single issue, mm-hmm. but isn't always doing that much until the Simonson period, honestly. Yep. Because while he and Danny are the co-leaders, it feels more like he's sort of the emotional support, I guess, for the yeah, others. Yeah, Danny is like the the like the like field leader. And, yeah, she's the one who's yeah. actually like, she's being Cyclops or Storm. Mm-hmm. Like, she's doing that. He's kind of doing something Sam is the team's else. big brother. Yeah, he's like, he almost fulfills a similar role to the one Moira does mm-hmm. early in the book. Like, it's sort of like, do you need someone to talk to about your feelings? Like, I'm normal. And the personal plot that he gets is the Lila Cheney plot. Which is hilarious which is wild yeah and i love a lot it. of it's fun so wild but it also makes sense that in x-force when they do eventually bring her back the first thing that happens is that she's just like honestly boom boom i'm a little too old for him so you guys you know have yep. fun because it's a very silly 80s teen movie yeah like romance. the, the, the- country hit getting the rock star yeah he's like 18 she's like 24 Mm -hmm. maybe and he's spent with her and she's like he's the nicest cutest guy and i'm an intergalactic thief Mm -hmm. 
it's fun. It's a rom-com, but like in a very like teen movie kind of way. And once he's no longer in the teen zone. Yeah, once yeah. he's in the 20, in, once he's himself in his 20s, although Cannonball's age is like a complicated All of the question. Mutants. good Lord. Particularly his, because there's that moment in the Fraction Run where he pulls a free white in 21 reference. And then someone points out like that that saying is racist, which didn't occur to him because, well, I mean, it does, a lot of people don't. Yeah. I think it's a genuine kind of moment. It reminds me of the Claremont beat where Danny's like, well, you know, my people are no stranger to lost causes and fighting till the end. And he's like, neither are mine. We fought with the Confederacy. And Ilyana (laughs) goes, great. You know, (laughs) because that's the thing about him is he's very good natured, but he also doesn't have a formal education, which he's Mm -hmm. very self-conscious about. Like the thing that lets you know his relationship with Lila is actually not illegal or anything is that he mentions he's like what does Lila want with me like I could be going to a real college but I'm yeah. doing this you know like it makes it clear that he's a college age student yeah. yeah maybe not when they meet but like by the time they're like hot and heavy he's like they 18, go 19. out of their way to see yeah. Like, he, yeah. he is an adult human. he is an adult yeah. right but he never really does manage to get there and I think that's why he gravitates toward Cable, who similarly, you know, if you look at Xavier and Magneto, Xavier is this very educated, upper-class guy. Magneto is something of an autodidact, but is like a philosopher, you know, like it's very... And then you have someone like Cable who sort of speaks to Cannonball where he lives, like says to Sam, like, we're here, we're trying to do the right thing. It's not always going to be intellectually, morally, what seems like the right thing, but we're doing our best. I'm proud of you. Keep up the good work. And much like with Sunspot, who clashed with Xavier and with Magneto, it's sort of with Cable that Sam, I think, first finds a mentor that sort of clicks for him. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense that he becomes the big character of X-Force because it's like at that point, Danny and Ilyana are off the page. Like he doesn't have a ton of competition. Yeah, like he's got what, like Shatterstar? Right. X-Force, yeah. like (laughs) By the time that Liefeld transitions New Mutants into X-Force, the only two members of the New Mutants who are still on the team are are Sam and Tabby. Right. Beto comes back, Richter comes back, but it takes a second. And for a while, it's like these weird new characters and like your touchstones, the couple, the Scott and Gene that you're meant to care about, which is wild, are Sam Guthrie and Tabby Smith, I which is I never realized, like, describing those two as Scott and Gene almost killed me. I know you're right. They functionally replace Rusty and Skids. They yeah. literally just step right in and eat Rusty and Skids' lunch to the point where, like, those characters are just truly Ugh, shuffled off skids. to Buffalo. Poor Skids. Just, it's like, sorry, Boom Boom's more fun. You're out. Yeah. It is a crazy moment, like, to see that transition, especially for those two characters, particularly for Boom Boom. Like, that, yeah. she has a really wild trajectory through the 90s. And I actually think that for both of them, that's part of why, outside of the Hickman and Ewing Avengers stuff, they have had some trouble, those two, particularly Boom Boom, breaking mm-hmm. out in more modern material. Yep. Because they're kind of in this no man's land where... The most iconic era, I would say, for both of those characters is this 90s X-Force period that has been completely abandoned. 
Yeah. Because now when those characters come back, it's in a New Mutants book, which is always an awkward fit for Tabitha because she wasn't part of the original team. Yeah, she was a much later addition. Right. She comes yeah. in right before the end and then she's mm -hmm. really more of an X-Force character. But X-Force for 20 years now has been the faster pussycat kill kill book, which is not really their thing either. So I think that that leaves them in a nebulous space also the loss of that relationship i think hurt both characters because it was a relationship in the 90s at least that people were very invested in yeah i mean they they are cute together like it's it's just that classic pairing of like you have a bad girl and a sweet wholesome boy like, yeah boom, done like that's always very be easy fun. yeah it's actually what Rusty and Skids, I mean, literally, that's also yeah. what Simonson does with Rusty and Skids. The problem is just like Rusty was a stick in the mud and Skids wasn't bad enough. You yeah. know, like it's like you got to push it a little further. Cannonball and Boom Boom, now that like you're drawing it, and like, yeah, they are just like the evolved forms of Rusty and yeah. Skids. Yeah, oh no, it's like way. a Pokemon evolution. Yeah. yeah, and it's just interesting because Cannonball was a pre-existing character. Yeah. But you actually go back and you look at Bob McCloud's design sheets with Claremont's initial notes for when they were planning out the graphic novel. The initial plan for Sam was just he shoots heat rays out of his hands. So it literally would have just been... Been rusty. Yeah. yeah. The code name they were floating for him back then was Holocaust, which I think probably got nixed. Yeah. In the sense of a nuclear holocaust, right? Claremont uses that word a lot because in the Cold War, you did, like, yeah. that was how it was used a lot. And now we really don't say that anymore. And it's just one of those things where you look back and like, huh. And you're just like, ooh, ooh. Cannonball was a smart choice, but also, more importantly, giving him a power that was so visually striking I, and unique, uh, that, more than anything else, I think, kept the character alive because he's fun to draw into any situation. Artists, if you're listening, if you want to make one lesbian who loves Cannonball happy, <laughs> draw a sequence where he is getting, like, he's, like, riding himself in air and, like, he has to, like, like, there's like sputters and then boom and then he flies away. It's so satisfying to like see his power actually have to like kick on. Like and do the cannon thing. Exactly. Like, to see it that way with like we're like there's a kick to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so like because like I think it's, he, he has a wonderful power. Like it's such a simple like he can fly like a human cannonball. He's invulnerable when he's doing nigh invulnerable. Do not yell at but me. But only when he's doing it. Only is when he's doing it. And like it's just such a like no-brainer like of course that's a power of course someone has that yeah and it's also very easy to show his growth in using mm -hmm. it because it's like oh he can turn now like you know things like yeah. that like there are ways that are very obvious whereas like a character like wolfsbane i think was often hurt by the fact that yeah. you well i mean wolfsbane's been hurt by so many by a lot decisions of that have been made over the last 30 years but one of the things that i think causes her to struggle somewhat as a character is that her power is just sort of like what it it's is. one note. You are, yeah. Yeah, they moved toward like the half werewolfy thing over time, but for the most part, it's just kind of like, okay, she got claws. Yeah, they they even had the half werewolf because I was rereading a bunch of New Mutants stuff. Yeah, and I was I was shocked to see in like still when Claremont was still on the book. It's like, very early yeah. on, yeah. And then it's just like, oh, that's like her trick. Plateaus. That's yeah. it. Now she's got like duplication power is some mother vine or whatever but that's a full don't worry about it for me yeah very much but cannonball and mirage and sunspot all had powers that you could 
boost in ways that were very apparent. You know, Cannonball getting control over his uncontrollable mm-hmm. power. And then eventually being able to, like, expand his invulnerability field. Right. It's a lot like what Claremont does with Kitty Pride, which mm-hmm. is, like, she comes in, she can walk through walls, that's it. But eventually it's like, oh, I can walk on air by doing this thing with my density. I can do this. I can take people with me. I can take objects. I can objects. phase, like, and then unphase something right. halfway through someone. Look how good I am at martial arts because mm-hmm. I can do all of these things that I wouldn't be able to do if I couldn't put my limbs through people in the middle of a move or whatever. Right. So it's a power that allows for visual signifiers of the character maturing. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's the character who we get to watch mature over so many years. Mm-hmm. I think he is the one that we sort of grow up with because very much so. Danny and Ilyana have their arcs disrupted in terms of aging, right? Mm-hmm. Like once Danny's a Valkyrie, she's sort of this higher being. It's not really the same thing. And Ilyana obviously dies. Yep. But before that, she's a child again. So he's really the one who gets that in sort of an organic, natural way. I think with Rain, it's all fits and starts, kind of. And Sean always felt like an adult. I mean, she's the same age as Colossus. Like, it's always, she was always an awkward fit with the team. You know what my favorite part of this is? We have not mentioned Magma once. So, I was about to get to that. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> Because I get why several writers tried to make Sunspot and Magma happen over time, because they are similar in the sense that they're the characters who leave the team Mm -hmm. constantly. The thing about Sunspot and Magma is that unlike Cannonball, where you have essentially an uninterrupted blast of this character maturing over 20 years, Sunspot will show back up and like things have happened to him in the interim and he's a very different person now and you just need to roll with it. Magma similarly is just sort of whoever any writer wants her to be, literally sometimes. Where is she from? What's her origin story? It's a choose your own adventure. So there's something appealing, I guess, about the stability of Cannonball in that sense. He's like Kitty that way. They are the two characters who we get to watch come in and then grow into adult superheroes over the course of the 80s and 90s. So I will say this. Cannonball, I love him. He's my perfect sweet boy. I, I He's my son. I will protect him. <laughs> he's not my... Kate is my favorite X-Man. Right. I, I love her to death. But... I, as much as I love Kate and her journey, and I think she has maybe the single most, like, one of the single most satisfying arcs of any serial. Overall, for sure, yeah. There's something appealing about Cannonballs to me, because it isn't, like, there is absolutely that comic melodrama, like, you know, he loses his brother, he has to go retire at the farm for a while, like, but he just, like... You can't keep that guy down. He's constant. He always gets back up. He's always around. He's always doing something. If you're a Cannonball fan, it's like, where is Cannonball? Usually in a book. He'll shoot. Give it a few years. He'll shoot. Give it a minute. Like, if he's taking care of his mom because she's sick or whatever, like, he'll be back in a year. Like, it's that kind of character. Mm -hmm. There is a rarity to that in X Men. I think that there are some characters like Cyclops or Wolverine or Storm who are like that. They're always going to be around. Mm But particularly with the student classes, it is really hard to have a favorite character in one of those classes because they will vanish for years at a time. And they'll they'll have like 
they'll be reset because yes. like writers want them and like I get it it's a really there's like four distinct generations of mutants at this point and and we have a sliding time scale where we have yeah. to pretend that they're all about the same age which and is so awkward like, like the Academy X kids right now I think are in a rough spot because they were teens almost 20 years ago now they're the ones who I think are most impacted mm-hmm. because the Gen X kids at this point you can just fold into new mutants and they're yeah the they're, same they're age. just they're yeah jubilees of yeah right it's like jubilee and monet are maybe like two years younger than like danny and yeah like it's fine like you don't have to overthink it but like you know the academy x kids like anole right now poor guy like well yeah because what age are they and you know it's whatever age makes sense for the story the writer is mm-hmm. telling but then it's hard to get consistent character development yeah and it's 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 like i would never like i get why it annoys readers i've been annoyed by that before but like it's especially with the X-Men, it's just so, like DC runs into it sometimes with like, you know, it's Teen the Titans. The Robins yeah. and the Teen Titans, yeah. But like X-Men is such a specific where there are like almost hard generational lines. Yes. And I think that's the healthiest way to think about character ages with the X-Men. Like I remember there was like a little bit of a service about Richter and Bobby going on a date in mm-hmm. the Iceman solo because Bobby helped teach Richter back in yeah. X-Factor. But I was like, listen... First of all, there's like four gay characters. So like, you know, there's not that many options. But also, Bobby is younger than the rest of the O5. Richter is a little bit older. It's one generation. I don't have a problem with one generation. It's when it starts skipping more than one that I start to get. I mean, that that's the whole like there are some people who are not happy with Kate and Emma in Marauders, like, you know, being very heavily kind of flirtatious. Yeah. Very much so. And I understand, like, because it's all how you approach the story. Because, like, yes, if you go back and read, you know, the Dark Phoenix saga or whatever, Emma is an older woman. Emma's 40 and Kate is 14. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But then, like, over time, Kate is fully an adult. Yeah, I would say Kate Pride, as we have her now, is at least 25. And Emma has been de-aged a little bit and is maybe 35. Like, you know, and they're much closer in age now the distance just gets shortened over time. And it's just, it's a pill you have to swallow being a comics fan. And it's harder for some people than yes. others. And I, I fully respect that. Yeah. If if someone is uncomfortable, that's like, that's, their that, that is your choice to make. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I've talked about this with Kate in particular, because I think that her relationships are the ones most complicated by mm-hmm. that, particularly oh, her yeah. relationship with Piotr and her relationship with Pete wisdom, because Piotr is five years older than her when they're introduced. And I, I, I have to say, I don't find it as bad as some people do in the 80s. The bad stuff for me is in the 90s when I think he's like very emotionally abusive to her as, as her ex. Point is, all of that stuff is hard to talk about because mm-hmm. now they're about the same age in modern comics. Because oh, yeah. you can't like now I guess they're 25 and 30, but it's like how long ago were those stories? It's difficult. Similarly, Pete Wisdom was like 30ish when he was introduced and she was like 18, yeah. and that is a significant part of their plot. It's why the writer right after Ellis is like this is no good and writes it out. But you can't really address that plot on the page either because he's still like 30ish and she's now like 25. 25, yeah. So it's, it gets ugh. complicated. With Sam, one thing that's been nice is that because his love interests are either right in his cohort or new characters, 
Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. like, either a new character or someone like Lila Cheney, who could be whatever age you want, particularly. Yeah. She just needs to be at least a couple years older than him. You can draw on all of those. Like, when Claremont has Sam and Lila get back together in Extreme, it doesn't feel weird that this is happening. It's like, oh, this is his ex from a couple years ago, and you don't have to worry too much about it. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of my approach to X-Men age continuity is like a don't worry too much about it. I think if you're skipping two generations, the other character should at least comment on it. Yeah. Warren and Husk, I think we're supposed to be like, she's a little young for you. And the characters say she's a little young for you. And the relationship ultimately doesn't work because she's a little young for him. Mm -hmm. That I'm usually good with. With Emma and Kate, it's actually interesting you mentioned that. That doesn't bother me, I guess, for two reasons. One is that I don't think it would ever actually go there. I think it's more like a vibe. Not to get into the Kate of it all, obviously. I, but I, like, look, I'm just gonna say I want <laughs> Kate to kiss as many girls as she wants to kiss. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I, I do think that with Emma... I think they're better as, like, we flirt sometimes, but we know that it's a joke. You oh, yeah. Know? I, I would never want them to date. I will say that. Yeah. The other reason that I think I like it is because if you go back to that old stuff, the Kate and Emma, the Kitty and Emma stuff mm -hmm. from the 80s, I think that Claremont is playing specifically with that girls' school trope of, mm -hmm. like, the sort of sapphic subtext teacher who's nefarious and obviously plays with that much more overtly in Excalibur with Kitty and Satyr 9. Yep. It is a beat that he was interested in with the character. It is a very classic Pulp Fiction beat for like a young woman character in this kind of setting. And so seeing that turned on its head a little bit, and now it's like, there's kind of a gay vibe between this girl and her teacher, but they're like grownups. They're adults, so. But also there's nothing like evil about it. Like <laughs> I do like the switcheroo there. But I'm also, I would be interested to see them maybe come into conflict a little bit more. Marauders has been a strange book for me because it was up through about when Shaw gets yeah. just wrecked. It was among my favorite books in the line. Mm -hmm. I adored it. I mean, it was basically made for me. Right. You know, big Kate fan, love, like, kind of comedy action books. That's usually a vein that I adore. As a big Emma fan who yeah. used to be a big Kate fan and then fell off with Kate in, mm -hmm. like, the Whedon period onward for a while, I loved that book. I do think it is plot-wise the one that was probably most impacted by COVID and the shuffling of the events. Yeah. The fact that Shaw doesn't get dealt with until after Ten of Swords is crazy, right? Like that's, yeah, it's that's very bananas. clearly like our schedule got fucked up. Yeah, that is know? like, like the, the that is the end to year <laughs> one of Marauders yeah. is Shaw getting wrecked. And it absolutely should be before yeah. the event and it just isn't because mm. guess what? There was a plague. Like that's just one of those things where it's like, what are you going to do? That Vita Ten of Swords. The Storm issue. Fantastic. The Storm issue. Nothing to do with the rest of that book. No. One of the best issues of that run. That issue is incredible. That's, I mean, that's. I think that's one of the best issues of Dawn of X. Oh, agreed. Yeah, 100%. Full stop. I think that's a great issue. I think it's, I mean, if you are someone who grew up loving Storm, it's been a real rough yeah. 20 years, 30 years almost, let's say. And that story was exactly what I want to read. Even like up through Dawn of X, I feel like they weren't really doing anything with her. And the Vita comes in and it's like, here you go. Here's... And, and, People, hey, turns out someone remembers how to write a storm story. Well, and they've said, you know, I, I think 
it's something I do try to bear in mind. There's so much behind the scenes stuff that we're oh, privy to. Yes. And, you know, both Jerry and Jonathan Hickman have said, like, what we could do with Storm in that first year was limited by the fact that ta Black Panther run was still going. Oh, yeah. So that's just one of those things that's tricky. But I'm very, very glad that they've shifted her to a new yeah, I think she's role going where to she's going to have a starring. Role. I mean, yeah. Ewing was made to write that character. Oh, you 100%. read his X Men Monday little interview last week because no. he talks about he's like I don't want the Storm fans who love her powers to get worried about this, but the Storm that I love most is the depowered Storm from the eighties, and here's all of these reasons. That's he's the like, best Storm, and that's how I feel. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm all in because he was like, I want to bring the heart of that character to the Storm we have now, who's more powerful than she's ever been before. And I was like, that sounds perfect. That's exactly what well, I want. Since this is <laughs> going to be out, and I won't be yeah. like, like um, you're really going to enjoy tomorrow's issue of Sword. Well, there you go. We are, yeah, yeah. we're recording on the 27th, so yeah. Sword is out tomorrow, or I guess you're tonight. gonna, you are going to love that issue. I am. I can't tell you how excited I am for that issue. I'm very, very excited. Good. It's like writer I love, character I love, who I kind of fell out of love with for mm-hmm. a long time because she wasn't being served by the. Na- I mean, this is how I, like. What I want with Storm, what I want to feel is what I am feeling with Betsy Braddock right now because when I was a kid, Betsy Braddock and Storm were my favorite Mm -hmm. X-Men. And then basically in the 90s, they both became characters I didn't recognize. Yeah. And now it feels like for me, Betsy is back to what I love about the character, and I want Storm to to get there too. And I feel like it's coming. You're going to like Sword tomorrow a whole lot. I'm (laughs) really excited. Yeah. So to get back... To, to Sam, right. I, oh, poor I think When you get me started on the women, I just, you know, I can't stop myself. I think now is actually kind of a good time for us to pause for a second for me to do the Cerebro character file yep. on Sam Guthrie. Catch up all the listeners who may, quite honestly, because a lot of the listeners of this podcast are shockingly young, by which I mean they're like in their 20s, but then they yeah. tell me the year they were born, and I'm like, oh, no, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. No. So I think it's very possible that unless you are an Avengers reader, if you are under 25, you maybe haven't read a lot of Cannonball stories because he was huge for so long and then really did kind of fall off post carry run for a while. So I'm going to do that. We'll run you through it. We'll run you through everything, including the externals. Don't worry. I will. We got so many questions about the externals. Oh, boy. The point. Here's the fact of the matter. Rob Liefeld was doing a riff on Highlander. It's not that serious. Don't worry about it. it, But we'll get to it. And I will try to explain the retcons as they come, as I do. But then we will come back for more with Zoe Tanel on Cannonball. We'll talk about your favorite storyline, Zoe, and then we will get into the listener questions. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening. Don't go anywhere because we're just going to keep blasting. And while we're blasting, we are nigh invulnerable. Just nigh, though. Only not. We're not quite there. We're getting there. We're trying. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Samuel Zachary Guthrie, called Sam, but best known by the codename Cannonball, is one of the original New Mutants, the class of students Charles Xavier recruited in the early 80s. Created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud, he's the Boy Scout of the team, a good and gentle young man born into poverty in Kentucky coal country. Initially taking something of a backseat to New Mutants co-leader Danny Moonstar, Sam came into his own in the 90s, first as the field leader of X-Force and then as the only New Mutant to officially graduate to the X-Men. In the time since, he's struggled to follow in Cyclops' footsteps as the next great leader of mutant kind, and eventually became a member of the Avengers. 
After marrying Smasher, a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, he has mostly retired to outer space to raise their young son. Before I start, I just want to correct a very funny error from last week's episode. In the first issue of Fallen Angels, Beto doesn't accidentally kill Sam. He accidentally almost kills Sam. Sam gets over it real fast to the point where I'm not even going to bring it up here, which is why I'm telling you now. Got it? Sam debuts in 1982's graphic novel number four, The New Mutants, by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod, the eldest child of farmer Lucinda Guthrie and her late husband, Thomas Zebulon Guthrie. He's only 16, but has been working in the coal mine since his father was killed in a mining accident. His mutant power catalyzes to save his life when he and another miner are trapped in a mining collapse, and he draws the attention of Donald Pierce, one of the Lord's Cardinal of the Hellfire Club. Pierce misleads Sam and recruits him to become a Hellfire operative, and in this capacity, he ends up battling the young students Charles Xavier and Moira McTaggart have assembled to form the New Mutants class. When Pierce orders him to kill them, Sam refuses and betrays him. He ultimately becomes the final member of the new squad at Xavier's and takes the codename Cannonball. Not long into the ongoing New Mutants title, team leader Xiang Koi Man, codenamed Karma, is lost in an explosion and believed dead. Sam and his teammate Danny Moonstar, codenamed Mirage, are chosen to jointly replace her as co-leaders due to their younger age. Sam quickly becomes best friends with teammate Beto de Korshta, codenamed Sunspot. When the team winds up in Nova Roma, a secret ancient Roman colony in the Brazilian jungle, Sam and Beto are briefly forced into gladiatorial slavery until they impress the nobility with their mutant powers. During the Nova Roma adventure, the team recruits young noblewoman Amara Aquila, who takes the codename Magma. Sam has a crush on Amara, but she does not reciprocate, mirroring Sam's own relationship with Rain Sinclair, codenamed Wolfsbane, who has a crush on him that he does not reciprocate. In the 1984 New Mutants Annual No. 1, Sam becomes entangled with famous rock star Lila Cheney, who turns out to be an infamous intergalactic thief with long-range mutant teleportation powers. Bitter because of past life experiences, Lila plans to steal the Earth and sell it to aliens, but she's double-crossed and rescued by the New Mutants. Vowing not to do any more harm to the people of Earth, Lila formally enters into a romantic relationship with Sam. After rescuing the actually alive Karma from her possession by the Shadow King, and then having an impromptu adventure in Asgard, the New Mutants return to Xavier's to discover that Magneto has been placed in charge of the school because Xavier has been forced to depart for Shi'ar space. They're slow to trust their new mentor, given that previously he was the X-Men's arch-nemesis, and they don't have much time to adjust before they are murdered and resurrected by the cosmic entity called the Beyonder, which leaves them traumatized and nearly catatonic. Eventually, with the help of Emma Frost, the Hellfire Club's White Queen, Magneto is able to restore them to normal. 1986's New Mutants 42 is a Sam spotlight issue. He's gotten serious enough with Lila Cheney that he wants to introduce her to his mother, but he's nervous because his mother is fairly traditional and Lila is an over-the-top rock star. He wonders if he should give up the New Mutants and move home to help his struggling family, but his mother refuses to even consider it. Lila arrives with a gift for Sam's mother, a crystal figurine of herself, and Sam assumes she stole it. Lila is offended, but they reconcile after he rescues her from a plane crash. In the end, Lila surprises him by dressing conservatively for dinner at the Guthrie farm, where she becomes a hit with his mother and many, many siblings. Under new writer Louise Simonson, the New Mutants begin losing faith in Magneto due to his growing association with the Hellfire Club. Sam and Danny begin ignoring his orders, which leads to the murder of their teammate Doug Ramsey, codenamed Cypher, in an unauthorized operation during the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants. The kids are devastated, and their relationship with Magneto is irreparably strained. Not long afterward, Lila is kidnapped by Spider, an alien slaver, and the New Mutants travel to outer space to rescue her. Sam and Beto are turned against each other for a time by Spider's associate Gossamer, a beautiful alien with empathic manipulation powers. 
And in the end, Lila is forced to teleport Gossamer's family, world-destroying cosmic threats to the universe, don't worry about it, into the heart of a sun. This apparently kills Lila, too, and Sam grieves terribly, though he grants there's a possibility Lila may have survived. She can only teleport to places she's been before. After the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which the New Mutants team up with X-Factor students, the Exterminators, to rescue 13 babies from a demon sacrifice, the kids discover Magneto has dedicated himself fully to the Hellfire Club. The New Mutants abandon him and the destroyed Xavier School entirely, merging teams with their new friends, the Exterminators, and begin living on X-Factor's spaceship headquarters. Not long into this new arrangement, a crisis in Asgard compels Danny Moonstar to stay behind there to help her fellow Valkyries. Don't worry about it right now. And Sam is left for the first time to lead the team alone as they come into conflict with a new terrorist group called the Mutant Liberation Front. They're aided by Cable, a mysterious time-traveling cyborg soldier, and arch-enemy of the MLF's leader, Strife, who becomes their new mentor. He moves the team back into the Xavier School for training, using the undamaged subterranean levels beneath the rubble of the mansion. In Louise Simonson's final New Mutant story, part of the 1990 franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda and co-plotted with artist Rob Liefeld, most of the team is written out, with only Sam, Beto, Cable, and Tabitha Tabby Smith, codenamed Boom Boom, remaining. Beto leaves as well shortly thereafter. And with a few new recruits joining them, the team reorganizes as X-Force, a proactive paramilitary organization led by Cable and Sam. They relaunch into a new book by that name, written and drawn by Rob Liefeld, co-written and scripted by Fabian Niciesa. The X-Men don't agree with X-Force's violent methods, which brings Sam into conflict with his former mentor, Charles Xavier. He and Tabby, meanwhile, are growing closer, and their relationship is taking on romantic overtones. While Sam doesn't trust Cable entirely and is conflicted about some of X-Force's more brutal operations, he bonds deeply with his new mentor. Cable takes on a father figure role that Sam has been lacking for years. During a battle with a new incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Sam's powers are disrupted, leaving him vulnerable to the talons of Sauron. Sauron rips Sam's chest open, killing him instantly, but Cable isn't concerned. He brings Sam to the infirmary and announces to the group that Sam will soon return from the dead. Cable believes Sam is one of the Externals, also called the High Lords, a rare subset of mutant kind with the additional power of immortality. Guiding Sam on his journey to accepting this power is one of the reasons Cable has time-traveled to the past. Soon enough, Sam does indeed reanimate, his wounds spontaneously healing. He's distressed to learn about his external nature, afraid of outliving all his loved ones, especially because it complicates his developing romance with Tabby. Shortly after this, Rob Liefeld abruptly leaves the title to co-found Image Comics, and Fabian Niciesa assumes full writing duties. Sam is attacked by Cruel, another external who is operating on behalf of the external Gideon. Externals are the only true threat to other externals, and the other High Lords have learned of Sam's existence and seek to destroy him. With Beto's life on the line as Gideon's captive, Sam vows never to interfere in external business. Separated from Cable by a plot you don't need to worry about right now, X-Force establishes a new headquarters in the abandoned Camp Verde, formerly the reservation of teammate Warpath's Apache tribe. In the 1992 franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, a man who appears to be Cable attempts to assassinate Charles Xavier. It's actually Strife, leader of the MLF, who's identical to Cable for reasons as yet unrevealed. With Cable believed the culprit, the other X-teams apprehend X-Force and keep them in holding cells at the Xavier Mansion. Sam is eventually allowed to assist the X-Men in taking the battle to Strife, but both Strife and Cable are apparently killed at the end of the event. In X-Force 19, Sam delivers a heartfelt speech to Xavier, demanding that he be allowed to lead X-Force as he sees fit without the X-Men's interference. The team is freed from captivity and allowed to go free. 
Meanwhile, Lila Cheney, who got better, gives Tabby her blessing to date Sam because she's too busy traveling the universe and honestly, she's too old for Sam to begin with. When the externals begin dying of the legacy virus, they decide to study Sam, the newest external, in the hopes of developing a cure. They kidnap some of his X-Force teammates to pressure him, and as a man of his word, Sam honors the promise he made never to interfere with external business. The rest of the team rescues everyone, though, and the externals are put on notice to leave Sam alone in return. Not long after this, Cable resurfaces, having survived his jaunt in the time stream, but he takes a more advisory role as he sees how his students have grown in his absence. Strife does not return, meanwhile, and the power vacuum at the top of the MLF is filled by a mysterious new villain called Rainfire. In battle with this new repurposed mutant liberation front, Beto is apparently killed in an explosion, devastating Sam. He decides to take a break, and Tabby joins him in a trip home to Kentucky, where he introduces her to his family. This leads into the Young Hunt, in which the mutant-hunting mutant thrill-seekers called the Upstarts attempt to capture and kill all surviving members of the New Mutant Squad and their 80s rivals, Emma Frost's Hellions. Things get pretty dire, but Sam is rescued by his younger sister Paige, who has developed shape-shifting mutant powers of her own. Then the externals pop up again like a bad penny. Gideon and two of his fellows approach Sam for advice because of a prophecy saying that Sam, as the 11th external, is the one destined to save the subspecies from extinction. The legacy virus is particularly devastating to externals, and they don't know what to do about it. Sam impresses upon them that the length of a person's life isn't relevant, and all that matters is making moral choices in the time you have. This comforts Tabby, who realizes Sam's immortality isn't an actual impediment to their relationship. Still hoping Beto is alive out there somewhere, Sam upgrades the mutant detector Cerebro with future technology from Cable. It turns out Beto is alive and well in the present, and the team arrives at MLF headquarters to discover Rainfire has turned on his minions. To Sam's horror, Rainfire reveals that he is Beto, accidentally sent forward in time, where he turned to evil. Right after this issue, the franchise-wide event Age of Apocalypse entirely rewrites the timeline. In the middle of that event, Fabian Nicieza is fired from X-Force, and when the book returns, it's now written by Jeff Loeb. Cable is able to expunge the Rainfire persona from Beto's mind, and Beto rejoins X-Force. Their headquarters destroyed yet again, the team moves back to the X-Mansion, where they begin working more closely with the main X-Men team. Xavier and Cable decide, much to Sam's surprise, that he has graduated from X-Force. He's being promoted to the X-Men. Sam is overjoyed and pivots into Uncanny X-Men, written by Scott Lobdell, but he's nervous about suddenly being the junior member of the team, and being on different teams begins to unravel his relationship with Tabby. In a 1995 special issue by Terry Cavanaugh and Brian Hitch, Sam and his sister Paige, now the Generation X member Husk, return to Kentucky to talk sense into their younger sister Joelle, who never manifested a mutant power and, bitter, has been lured into joining an anti-mutant extremist group. Back in Westchester, Sam expresses his anxiety about his place on the X-Men to Professor Xavier, who is extremely rude about it because he's turning into Onslaught. Do not worry about it. Over in X-Force, meanwhile, almost all the externals get murdered unceremoniously by Selene, one of their number. X-Force is worried about Cannonball, but Selene reassures them that Cannonball isn't an external, has never been an external, and Cable lied to them all about why Sam came back from the dead. This development is literally never addressed again except for a joke one time and is a pretty stunning example of an on-page dwy. After all the onslaught stuff, Sam finds new purpose when he goes undercover with teammate Iceman to infiltrate the presidential campaign of anti-mutant bigot Graydon Creed, the leader of the Friends of Humanity. Creed slowly allows Sam into his inner circle, but the whole operation becomes a moot point when Creed is shot and killed by an unknown assassin. Later stories will reveal the assassin was his mutant mother, Mystique. 
In Uncanny X-Men 341 by Scott Lobdell and Joe Maggerera, Gladiator, leader of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, searches for the X-Men and ends up fighting Cannonball due to a misunderstanding. Gladiator is shocked and impressed when Cannonball defeats him with a clever application of his mutant power. Sam still gets left behind when other X-Men are transported to aid the Shi'ar, as the Shi'ar consider him too young to be placed in danger. Then comes Operation Zero Tolerance, which you honestly don't need to worry about. In the aftermath of that event, the X-Men franchise is briefly directed by writers Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel, who add three new team members to the X-Men, Marrow, Maggot, and Dr. Cecilia Reyes. Emboldened now that he isn't the newbie, Sam begins speaking up more and castigates team leader Storm when she's hard on Marrow, a former villain. Marrow develops a crush on Sam, and while he's kind to her, he does not reciprocate. He then cameos over in X-Force, now written by John Francis Moore, where he reunites with his friends and quickly discovers that Tabby and Beto are having an affair. Furious with both of them, he departs to return to the X-Men, but shortly thereafter, he quits the team to return to Kentucky, where his mother is grievously ill. Lucinda decides to move the Guthrie family to Lexington, a bigger city, so that she can receive treatment and hopefully make a full recovery. Then there's a whole thing with the Deviants, who are the enemies of the alien race called the Eternals. Watch the Chloe Zhao movie this fall if you want to know more, I guess, but don't worry about it right now. After that incident, Sam rejoins X-Force. They're summoned by mutant secret agent Pete Wisdom to Genosha, the former anti-mutant apartheid state that has become a mutant sovereign nation ruled with an iron fist, get it, by Magneto. Impressed by Wisdom, Sam decides X-Force should begin training with him and become a black ops organization. Under new writer Warren Ellis, the team reconfigures for more morally ambiguous operations under Wisdom's mentorship, leading some team members, including Danny Moonstar, to quit in protest. During this run, Sam and Tabby rekindle their romance. Pete Wisdom's apparently killed, and X-Force fakes their own deaths to begin performing acts of terrorism in the service of mutant rights, essentially becoming a new incarnation of their old rivals, the Mutant Liberation Front. Sam dyes his hair dark during this period to avoid being recognized, and realizes he now resembles Wisdom. Eventually the book is cancelled, and it turns out Wisdom wasn't actually killed to begin with. X-Force immediately relaunches into an entirely new concept under writer Peter Milligan and artist Mike Allred, introducing a team of mutant celebrities. That book will eventually be retitled Ecstatics. The members of the 90s team fade into the background of the franchise for a time, with most of them becoming members of the global outreach organization X-Corporation, or X-Corp, alongside characters from other cancelled titles like Generation X and X-Factor. As an operative for X-Corp Paris, Sam appears in Grant Morrison's new X-Men to battle Weapon 12. His teammate Darkstar is killed in the incident, and Sam ends up leaving X-Corp. He returns, written by his creator Chris Claremont, in the title Extreme X-Men, where it's revealed Xavier found Lila Cheney and sent Sam to her to recover from all the compounded trauma of his time in X-Force and X-Corp. Sam and Lila went on holiday in space and became a couple again. Rather than rejoining X-Corp, he decides to join up with Storm's rogue team of extreme X-Men in the interest of bridging the gap between humans and mutants. Sam is a regular in this book for the rest of its run, but doesn't have very notable storylines. He does reunite with former New Mutants Beto, Amara, and Skids when the extreme X-Men team up with X-Corp Los Angeles. Sam follows Storm to Uncanny X-Men when Claremont returns to that title in 2004's issue 444. Now operating as the Extreme Sanctions Executive, an international police force, this is a weird era, the team returns to Westchester to operate out of the Xavier Mansion. Sam is quickly left badly injured by the interdimensional superhero-killing robot called the Fury. Don't worry about it right now, it's Captain Britain stuff, but check out the Brian Braddock episode if you want to know more. And he purchases a farm in Kentucky where he plans to recover. In an X-Force miniseries by Fabian Niciesa and Rob Liefeld, he's convinced to battle Cable for reasons that don't really make sense. It all ends up with an X-Force reunion to fight the Scorn, do not worry about it, and at the end, Cable is apparently killed, 
again. Inspired by his sacrifice, Sam decides to rejoin the X-Men. That's around when the decimation hits, and Sam's sister Melody, codenamed Arrow, is one of the majority of mutants worldwide to lose her powers. Soon afterward, his brother Jay, codenamed Icarus, is murdered by the Purifiers when the anti-mutant group attempts to exterminate the roughly 200 mutants left, who have gathered at Xavier's. Still grieving, Sam's recruited by Rogue for her new strike team as Mike Carey takes over writing on the adjectiveless X-Men title. In the team's first mission, they battle the Children of the Vault, a new techno-organic threat, and one of the children, a woman named Serafina, hijacks the powers of Lady Mastermind to trap Sam in a telepathic fantasy world where they are in love. She's curious about romance and sex, and Sam and Sarah spend 20 years together in his subjective experience, marrying and having children. Sam begins to notice the world around him doesn't make sense, and after he's freed from the delusion, he's devastated to have lost the wife and children he had grown to love. When he next confronts Serafina, he asks her if those feelings were induced in him by her programming, and she admits that they were. Grimly relieved, he kills her in cold blood. Rogue decides her team should have a headquarters outside the mansion, which strikes Sam as a good idea because he's still traumatized by his brother's murder at the school. Betrayed by Lady Mastermind, obviously, the team is attacked by the Marauders, and Sam and Iceman fall into the clutches of Mr. Sinister, who wipes portions of Sam's brain, disrupting his powers. Though Sam makes it back to the mansion, he's grievously injured and winds up in a coma. When he wakes, with Iceman at his bedside, he confesses that Sinister's injury to his brain isn't the only thing weighing on him. He's still grieving the loss of his life with Serafina in the fantasy she induced. He retires from the X-Men to get his mind and body right. When the X-Men disband entirely after the apparent death of Charles Xavier in the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, Sam returns to Kentucky, where his anger and violent tendencies alarm his sister Paige. He reunites with Beto in the title Young X-Men by Mark Guggenheim and Yannick Paquette, and tries to convince Beto, now Lord Imperial of the Hellfire Club, to leave the club before he's targeted by his enemies. Donald Pierce, sure enough, tricks a group of young mutants to attacking Sam and Beto alongside the other classic new mutants. When it turns out one of the kids, Ink, had betrayed them to Pierce, Sam reflects on his own past with Pierce and convinces the teens to forgive him. Sam then moves to San Francisco, where the X-Men have established a new base of operations, and becomes the leader of a new squad comprised of his old New Mutants classmates in Zeb Wells' relaunch of New Mutants. Their first task is to rescue Danny Moonstar and Karma, who have been captured by the insane Omega-level mutant Legion, and Sam puts Danny's life at risk by accident when he underestimates her due to her losing her mutant powers in the decimation. The team is able to apprehend Legion and bring him in for treatment, but Sam feels he has absolutely failed as a leader. Cyclops does not agree. He says all that matters is that Sam brought his whole team home alive. Danny does agree and punches Sam right in the fucking face. It rules. Sam eventually realizes Danny belongs on the team even if she doesn't have powers anymore and apologizes for patronizing her. With this team, Sam is a by-the-book leader, always following Cyclops' orders and rarely thinking for himself. After Karma is maimed during the franchise-wide event Second Coming, ultimately losing a leg, Sam blames himself. Cyclops again stresses that the team survived, and that's the bottom line. Sam then secures permission to take a strike team to Limbo to rescue Ilyana Rasputina, the new mutant magic, in the Second Coming tie-in miniseries X-Men Hellbound, written by Christopher Yost. The Limbo mission is an absolute mess, but they do succeed in recovering Ilyana and returning to the mutant haven Utopia. Sam's still not confident in his leadership abilities after the events of Second Coming, despite Cyclops' reassurance, and suggests that he be replaced as leader of the New Mutants X-Men team. Cyclops instead orders the team to take a vacation as a bonding exercise. The New Mutants have fun despite themselves, getting really drunk and reminiscing about old times. Sam and Danny end up making out, much to the amusement of their friends. 
Then magic drags everyone to limbo to settle an old score with the Elder Gods. They're stuck in the Hell Dimension for weeks, battling the Inferno Babies, the infants they once rescued back during the franchise-wide event Inferno in 1989, now grown to adulthood in limbo and twisted into U.S. government assassins. The Inferno Babies force Sam to listen as they torture Danny, and once the team breaks free, Sam murders all the surviving babies by blasting through their truck. Ashamed, he resigns from his leadership role as the book transitions to new writers Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Suffering from extreme PTSD, Sam leaves Utopia during the 2011 event Schism and sides with Wolverine, deciding to leave the militaristic way of life Cyclops promotes and instead help Wolverine open the Jean Grey School for higher learning. This interrupts his growing romance with Danny, who remains on Utopia, but does reunite him with his sister Paige, who's now suffering from strange outbursts of mental illness in a plot you do not have to worry about right now. Toward the end of the New Mutants series, the team visits the Jean Grey school, and Sam realizes Danny has romantic feelings for her new teammate, Nate Grey. Then Sam gets yanked into the time stream by a villain who turns out to be the true friend, a corrupted version of New Mutant Cypher. And honestly, I didn't even remember to put this plot into Cypher's character file, so I would say, don't worry about it. It all gets sorted out in the end, and in the final issue, Sam and Danny talk. There are no hard feelings about her developing romance with Nate, and Sam and Danny part as platonic friends forever, just like the old days. Then things change dramatically for Cannonball, as writer Jonathan Hickman adds him and Beto to the cast of The Avengers. The two had decided to retire from heroics after the company-wide event Avengers vs. X-Men, but find it impossible to resist an offer to join the most beloved and high-profile superhero team in the world. I'm going to gloss over the Avengers stuff somewhat because this is not an Avengers podcast, but there's a lot of Sam content worth reading. The critical development is that he falls in love with Isabel Izzy Kane, aka Smasher, the first human member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. While Beto is jealous, because he was also attracted to Izzy. Yeah, that's it. He ultimately gives the couple his blessing. As Sam always does with his girlfriends when things get serious, he decides to introduce Izzy to his family. But Izzy bails on the dinner date, abruptly breaking up with him via hologram. Lucinda convinces her son to chase after the woman he loves, so he travels to Shi'ar space with the Starjammers and discovers Izzy is pregnant. The Shi'ar have rules and regulations about children born to Imperial Guardsmen, and Izzy was afraid to ask Sam to give up his life on Earth to be with her. Sam is overjoyed to learn he will be a father, and is accepted by the Shi'ar as an acceptable mate for Izzy. He retires from the Avengers and moves to the throne world Chandelar. There's a time jump, and when we return to the story some months later, the two are married and Izzy has given birth to a son they named Josiah. Josiah displays mutant powers from birth, nigh indestructible, no blasting required, and able to flout the laws of gravity. Eventually, Beto comes to Sam and Izzy asking for help with the incursion crisis, don't worry about it, and they join up with the Avengers again for the lead-up to the company-wide event, Secret Wars. After that's over, Sam returns to Chandelar to be a stay-at-home dad, while Izzy resumes her work with the Imperial Guard. Sam eventually returns to Earth under new writer Al Ewing when Beto runs afoul of S.H.I.E.L.D., and helps Beto negotiate a peace with the U.S. government by eliminating AIM terrorist cells and bringing AIM, an evil organization, don't worry about it, under Beto's complete control. He then becomes a member of Beto's new field team, the U.S. Avengers. But he commutes from a Shi'ar colony world, where Izzy is living with Josiah, and he begins to chafe at the demands of this double life. He asks Beto for more vacation time to spend with his wife and son, but shortly thereafter, he's caught in an explosion during a battle with the alien Chitori, after which he's missing and believed dead. He's actually been left floating out in space in a spacesuit, where he's captured and sold into intergalactic slavery. Don't worry about it. Beto and Izzy team up to rescue him. Eventually, after the 10,000th conflict between Iron Man and Captain America, the Avengers disband, with Sam returning to the Shi'ar galaxy to be with his new family. 
He next appears in Ed Brisson's X-Force, where he helps battle the Houndmaster Ahab and eventually aids in defeating Strife. There's time travel involved. Everything turns out okay, mostly, but Sam's pretty bummed that Cable was murdered by his younger self. We'll get to that in a Cable episode. After that story, Sam returns to retirement in Shi'ar space until the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which he is one of the few mutants not to move to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In a new arc of New Mutants by Jonathan Hickman and Rod Rice, Beto convinces the old New Mutant squad to get back together and travel to Shi'ar space to convince Sam to live with them on Krakoa, but they end up captured by Shi'ar authorities. Sam and Izzy bail them out, and after tangling with the Shi'ar Death Commandos, Sam stresses to Beto that he plans to remain in Shi'ar space with his wife and son. Beto, who's now romancing the rogue Shi'ar princess Deathbird, decides to also stay, and purchases Sam and Izzy's apartment building so he can move into it. What adventures wait for Cannonball, Sunspot, and Smasher in the Shi'ar galaxy remain to be seen, but there could be no doubt that Sam Guthrie will continue to serve as he generally has, honorably, altruistically, and nigh invulnerable when he's blasting. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. Thank you for awaiting. I appreciate you. I hope that was enjoyable. I hope you didn't just check out during the externals part. I swear it's not that confusing. Well, actually, it is, but the point is, the minute Jeff Loeb writes that plot out, you literally never have to think about it again. It's great. It's just it's, gone. It's so, so stupid. <laughs> and it's wild because for issues upon issues upon like 30 issues it's one of the central drivers of angst in the team mm -hmm. is like i'm immortal what does that mean and like boomba being like oh my god he's gonna live for centuries and i'm gonna die what does that mean for our relationship just of all the characters to pick <laughs> to like be and like you know you are like the next step like you are an immortal being cannonball I love the boy, but Cannonball? Bizarre. No. It's like, that yeah. guy? That power? Because you look at the other externals and they all have these, like, really sort of... I mean, like, Celine and Apocalypse, where the mm -hmm. characters that the rest of them are sort of budded off of, right, are, yeah. like, two of the most powerful villains the X-Men ever cross paths with. And then... I mean, frankly, all of the others aren't especially impressive. No. Gideon has moments. Kandra is like camp and I enjoy her, but mm -hmm. is like kind of a stupid character. I do miss her. I hope that at some point someone will be able to pull her out of the gate. But otherwise, they're pretty unremarkable, but they all do seem like powerful. They have they have like a like a majesty to them. Yeah, there's like a grandeur yeah. to them. And then it's like, and cannonball. Like, howdy, I'm here. But I guess that's the point, right? Like, because they even say at one point, once it's established that each of the externals represent like a concept, mm -hmm. they're all sort of like deception, corruption, seduction or whatever. And then he's just hope. It's like very, it's a very like Superman kind of yeah. thing to go back to Mon Pac Kent. It's that thing of it's like he's the good old farm boy who's like the American dream. He's going to make good. I actually like, like a lot of people are like, oh, Steve Rogers is like Marvel Superman or whatever. Cannonball is Marvel Superman. I will fight you. He just has never had a. a oh, he's, he's never going to be. Big. Yeah, he's never going to be that. Solo but in terms of literally being Superman, yeah, like, the only thing he's missing is the like immigrant mm -hmm. subtext, and instead he has the poor like, yeah, subtext, poor which is like American, Superman's yeah. family is definitely like Not middle rich. class. Yeah. yeah, but they're like doing fine in the suburbs. You mm -hmm. know, they're like farmers who have a thriving farm as yes. opposed to cannonball's farm which working, is working yeah cannonball working in the mines at yeah 16 like not to feed his right. family yeah because daddy died down the mine mm -hmm. i gotta start working you know that's a different vibe i think it is his 
trusting and kind and forthright nature that makes him an appealing character to assign that kind of stuff to. The idea that the next external, the one who's going to change everything, is the first external who's like nice. He's just a sweet boy. Yeah, he's just a nice kid. Like that, I get the idea. I am glad that they junked it though, because yes. it is like that is one of Jeff Loeb's better. It's wild because it's right around the time that Jeff Loeb introduces the Benjamin Russell plot, which is the other most convoluted plot in X-Force. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, you had a good instinct here, which was to get rid of the externals thing, which didn't make any sense. Now you're making a plot that makes even less sense. We were doing so well. He was just getting rid of the externals so he could so have he more could do his own yeah. completely demented plot. Yeah. So with that out of the way and the externals properly explained insofar as I am able, I'd love to talk before we get into questions about your favorite Cannonball stories. There's a wealth of them. He has more Zaladanes than most characters who get featured on this show. So he has a lot of stories to pull from. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear about the ones that you really love most. Well, my favorite Cannonball stories are the external stories. Um, (laughs) uh, No, my uh, my favorites... um, I'm terrible with issue numbers. Like people oh. are like, I, I had to write them down because people I are take like, notes oh, before yeah. every, uh, this is how this logic made. I take notes before every episode on issue numbers because otherwise I simply will get them wrong. And then I will get four or five emails like, actually. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know, you knew what I meant. Oh, by the way, while I have you on the bling episode, I referred to Gambit squad as the Corsairs, the Chevaliers. They're obviously the Chevaliers because obviously the Corsairs are Cyclops' squad. But sometimes I make mistakes. There's a correction that I'm happy to People give you all. Please be forgiving. Yeah, you know, it's fine. Quite honestly, the listeners of this podcast are very, very sweet. Oh. I very rarely get anything nasty, but I do get... Th- I think people enjoy because I do have like an unreasonable amount of information about this franchise in my head when I get something wrong and they get to be like, ooh, 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 ooh. Like, I know this one. Like, it's I like think correcting teacher in class. Yeah, which I yeah. think is great and I love that for them and they should feel free to do it. But not if I say 13 and mean 14. Please be, yeah, please come be on. kind. Like, you know. like- <laughs> so my first one, we, we talked a bit about the contents of this issue, but um, is New Mutants 42 which has Sam and Lila Cheney kind of dealing with their relationship as mm-hmm. Sam returns home to visit his family for the first time in a long time. And he's coming to introduce Lila to his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first he goes to visit and be like, time to go check in on the farm. Mm-hmm. And it's a really sweet issue. It's like, because you don't really get Cannonball solo spotlights, and this issue is entirely Cannonball and Lila. And you see him with his family, and it's a nice subversion, because you get, like, Cannonball being like, like, he starts to get some of that drama of, like, you know, well, I have to support my family, and I gotta, oh... I, I, I gotta quit being a hero. And then his mom just goes, you're an idiot. No, you don't. I can support right. the family. I am doing this. You are, you, like, I'm you're not You're a kid. You, you should yeah. go be a kid and live your life. I'm not gonna exactly. let you throw your life away down the mine. I'm not gonna let that happen. And then uh, the Lila angle is just, it, it's cheesy. Like you said, it's like 80s rom-com, but it's sweet. And basically, um, Sam goes to meet Lila at a concert she surprises him with like a little crystalline figure of herself. Mm-hmm. 
power move. Yeah, well, that's very... I mean, you can tell the reason that we're getting a cannonball solo story here is because it's a Lila Cheney story. Like, it's of very course. helpful to Chris Claremont yeah. when there's a female character you could make the story can, actually like, about. Hook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he, like, he immediately assumes she stole it. Cause, right, because you know, she's, she's a thief. She's a thief. That's what she does. She tried to steal the whole planet that one time. I mean, hey, swing big. Yeah, you know what? She's bold. I'll give her that. They get into a fight and like almost break up, but not quite. Because mm-hmm. she's like, actually, I made it. Yeah, she, yeah, it turns out she literally mined the ore herself. As like a gift for your mother. So yeah. cool that you assumed I stole something. It's very, she's being a little unreasonable because mm. I would also assume. It's a reasonable stole. assumption to be yeah. like, you stole the <laughs> You steal thing, things all the time. You? That's what you yeah. do for a living. And so like he goes and ends up rescuing her and um, Dazzler from like a plane wreck. Mm-hmm. The bit that I really love at the end is he's waiting outside for his mom to answer the door and like he's well he's waiting for Lila to get there before knocking and Lila teleports in wearing the most outrageous outfit in the world. Right, she has like rainbow hair. Yeah, rainbow hair, crop top, like you know, like every and Sam's just like, "Oh golly. Oh jeez, my mom's going to hate it." Right. But then he's like, "I got her. I love her." And she basically unhealthy in a relationship she was testing him oh it was total test yeah un- deeply unhealthy lila do better well she knows that's why when yeah. she eventually does come back in the 90s she's like quite yeah. honestly i'm not good for this boy <laughs> like to yeah, be no. like <laughs> but she she teleports back wearing like you know a normal outfit a pretty conservative outfit if i recall yeah, it's like for, a little black dress with yeah. like a blazer and like little pearls or something like she's like yeah. here to meet mom yeah, and it's just, it's sweet. It's a cute little issue. There's very low stakes. I am a big fan of those little one-off character spotlights mm-hmm. in team books. And especially when they're utterly removed from, like, Marauders does character spotlights, but it's still tying into, like, the ongoing plot. The plot, plot. right. I like it when it's just done. This is a cannonball story. It's no a bottle stakes. episode. Yeah, exactly. If you want to say to someone, I love this character, you can hand them this one issue. issue. They need zero context beyond you. Say, like, his girlfriend is a space rock star who steals things. That's all they need to know. That's it. It's interesting to me, given his later connection in the 90s material with Bobby Drake, how often they're paired as characters first in the 90s with uh, Graydon Creed and that whole storyline. And then again in the Carrie run, it's interesting to compare this issue to the very similar issue that Scott Lobdell does. Well, two of them, really. One where Bobby brings Opal home to his parents Mm -hmm. and they're racist. And one where Bobby brings Rogue home to his parents instead and it is disastrous in a different way. Mm -hmm. With this one, which is actually extremely sweet and wholesome and nice and just speaks to Ma Guthrie being one of the most lovely parent characters ever. All of those kids turn out all right. Like, Well, Joelle's a little suspect. Oh, well, well, but look, she gets one, better. One one kid out of the there's gonna be a bad running. apple yeah. in the bunch, you know. But uh, I do want to briefly. We're not going to talk about the story because I don't. It's not a great. But the Graydon Creed stuff. I forgot until last night that Sam's incognito identity when working for the campaign was Samson Guthrie, but Guthrie is G U T H R Y. I'm like, dude, that is. 
come on, you can, you were a new mutant. You know that's not a good enough name. Bobby's is Drake Roberts. It's insane. <laughs> it's come really, on, guys. The fact that it takes them as long as it does to get mm-hmm. found out is honestly remarkable and just speaks to Graydon Creed's poor security team, Truly. I would say. My next one is less for, I mean, it's another Sam and Lila story. It's actually not too long after that, but... It's less for the story itself, which is fine. It's cute. It's him at a show and like, you know, there's other mutant Mm -hmm. stuff. There's a moment in it, which I'm just like, this is goofy teen Sam Guthrie in a condensed space where he is. There are people trying to drug him at the party and like he just blew something with Lila and they go like, oh, looks like you're having a hard night. Do you want this champagne? And he just grabs a can of Pepsi off the table while he's wearing like a sleeveless vest and his hair is done up like he's legion and he's got ear piercings. And he just goes, oh, thanks, ma'am, but I only drink Pepsi. Right. And cracks it. And I'm just like, no, thank you. I love you, you sweet idiot. And it's a good issue. Like, I, I enjoy that issue. But that specific panel is burned into my memory. That's 55, I want to say. Uh, 55, yeah. It's Blevins, Simonson. Yeah, it's the first Simonson issue, actually, yeah. which is an interesting... Wait, great, like, hey, good start. <laughs> Who yeah, knew? well, and it's just an interesting... That transitional moment is interesting because she was only supposed to do four issues. It mm-hmm. was a fill-in. And then she ended up staying on the book for almost four years. Yeah. And taking the characters in very different directions, she is the one who writes out the Sam and Lila relationship. And I mean, I don't know. I'd have to ask her. But my understanding is that there was a desire to age the characters down a little bit in how mm-hmm. they felt because Claremont had made them feel very mature by the and end. And you of definitely get a little run. like you know the Pepsi is like a definitely right. a little like. Mm. And getting Lila out of the picture is mm-hmm. a good way to ensure he doesn't feel too old because she makes him feel like a character in his 20s yeah so if you want him to feel like 18 19 you you get her out it makes sense to get that character out of the Mm -hmm. story eventually once Liefeld takes over the book it's just natural to pair him with boom boom because they're the characters who stuck around they're the same age they're the same age it's it's the classic and they have a similar dynamic to lila and sam in the sense that it's the bad girl girl and the good boy right the other one and this one is like i i feel like this is like a famous issue as far as like a cannonball focused issue can be famous but it's uh, Uncanny 341, which is Lobdell and Joe Mad, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, look, I'm going to just, I'm a huge mark for Joe Mad art. I don't know what part of my brain it is, but I, I love it. I always will. I, I've come to terms with it. <laughs> <laughs> As I've said, I think he draws the men in a fun way. Mm-hmm. I find that the women are often oh. just a little would- much for me. I would never defend it as yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a well rendered. It's just like I, right, right. There's, there's. I was like twelve and open. My first, actually, I know exactly what caused this. Uh, my first issue of Wizard was the one where it had uh, like Ultimates three preview stuff, and like mm. I was still reading Ultimates one. Little did I know Ultimates three is like is where it goes bad. real wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I was still reading like Ultimates one, and so I was just like, oh my god, and this looks so like 
anime and cool. I love And so it just wormed its way into my brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Listen, the guy's a popular artist for a reason. Yeah. You know? Dude, dude is It's just not always to my now. taste. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But uh, it's the issue where he fights a gladiator, a fight he should not be able to win. And it's, I love it because it's like, it's a very cute issue for a few different reasons. It's a Christmas issue. Mm-hmm. Everyone uh, kind of gets, he's the main focus, but everyone kind of gets their own little, like, cute little moments. Except for Joseph and Rogue, which I don't, n- no moments are cute there for me. <laughs> I don't like them. Cannonball's whole story is that he is trying to Christmas present shop for his many siblings mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve. And he's doing it in a toy store in Times Square. Fool. <laughs> he ends up getting jumped by Gladiator. Yeah. And they end up fighting and, you know, Cannonball gets clowned a whole lot. Until there's this one moment where he remembers that Gladiator's powers are fueled by confidence. Right. Gladiator goes to, like, punch him through the earth. And Cannonball goes like, God, I hope this works. And expands his invulnerability field, takes the hit, and there's this just super badass panel of, like, smoke. And you can see, like, his eyes, and he's, like, in shadow. And he just goes, was that the best you got? Because I'm still here. And Gladiator (laughs) is, like, gone. He's just like, oh, God, I can't kill this pumpkin. And then the X-Men show up, and they, like, take him down. It's one of my favorite things where, like, someone uses their powers in a very clever way mm-hmm. to defeat a stronger foe without it feeling, like, forced. Yeah. Like, there are a whole bunch of times where it would be like, like, you know, someone beat Thanos with a stick or something. And, right. Because like, they were the writer's favorite character. This one feels like genuinely, oh, this is a very clever way. It feels way earned. To, yeah, this is a clever way to deploy Cannonball. And this is a very big win for him to have. And then I remember at the end of the story, even though he's impressed Gladiator, Gladiator and the Shi'ar leave him behind when they take the X-Men yeah, everyone, to do something. They take everyone else. Because they're like, you're a kid. We're not taking you. It would be inappropriate. Yeah. Even though he is like a grown-ass adult at this point. <laughs> like, he is the graduate. But that's kind of his last hurrah. That's right yeah. after the Graydon Creed arc. It's still Abdel. And then... Shortly thereafter, I want to say like nine or ten issues later, Steve Siegel takes over the book. Mm -hmm. And apart from his storyline with Marrow in the Joe Kelly adjective list, which I think is interesting because, again, it's about his sort of essential goodness and kindness, Mm -hmm. right? Marrow is, again, like bad girl, good boy, right? But it's it's a different flavor of bad girl. Right. it, It shows like... It shows, like, how Sam has grown as a person, where, like, he, even back, you know, back in the day, he wasn't, like, ever really scared of Rain. Right. But, like, I was gonna say, it's also reminiscent of Rain's crush on him 100%. from New yeah. Mutants. Yeah. He has spent his entire life caring for people who either aren't able to take care of themselves, or they are too hurt to take care of themselves. And all he wants to do is help them get to a place where they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it very sweet. Yeah, I like it because he doesn't reciprocate, but he's very respectful of her feelings. Yeah. And he's the one who advocates for her mm-hmm. to the other X-Men because she's like, you know, I'm especially because Joseph is around. I don't I don't mind Joseph. I, fair. I mean, I think just think he's nice to look at. <laughs> and, you know, I don't like long hair. So like, the power of Magneto goes a long way. 
but you know, while they're all talking to Joseph, he's kind of like, are we really not going to give this girl a second chance? Like, I thought that's what we do. That, yeah, that's the whole thing. Like, that's like our whole. And now that goes back, of course, to how Cannonball joins the X Men, mm-hmm. which is that initially he's deceived by Donald Pierce into becoming a mutant, anti mutant agent, which is very short lived. It's only in graphic novel number yeah. four, but it's something that I think always sticks with him and is part of why he's slower to trust authority figures after mm-hmm. that. And part of why Cable embracing him in this very genuine way. I mean, there's some Greg Capullo art where they sure are embracing and it's like a lot going on. But, you know, in general, him finding that is meaningful. One of my favorite Cannonball moments is right after Executioner's song. The the, the speech he gives. He gives like a, a speech yeah. to Xavier. It's fantastic. Basically like, fuck you, dad. Like, But it's like a very specific thing where it's like, you taught me these values, Magneto taught me these values, Cable taught me these values, now I'm a grown man, and we are going to try and do good in the world like you've taught us. Is that allowed or not? Are you still the boss of us, or did you actually want to teach us to be heroes who make choices as we see fit? It's what gets X-Force out of captivity, where they've been since Executioner's Song Mm -hmm. at the mansion. It also is, I think, what impresses Xavier enough to later, a couple years later, promote Sam to the X. To the X-Men, yeah. Because it's like, oh, that's, I mean, it's very Scott, right? It's like that kind of, it's a very Scott rebuking Xavier moment, which those are rare, but when they happen, they're like, damn. They're always like, you get some popcorn. Exactly. That's why I I also think it speaks to the difference, because like, Sam and Scott have a lot of, parallels not as much as like sam would originally believe like you know right we learned that danny is very much the scott danny's the scott yeah yeah, of the group for sure but like they have very similar parallels and i like comparing scott's you know very multiple rebukes of xavier to sam where sam is approaching it much more from like i think an empathetic point of view Mm -hmm. where like he he's not happy with chuck but he's like, look, I've been paying attention. I have been your student. I've been the student of everyone. This is what I know. You have taught me to be better than you are telling me to be right now. Right. I find that like such a more compelling than just like, eat shit, I hate you, Baldy. And like, you know, doing a wheelie out. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's always the most satisfying kind of rebuke of mm-hmm. the mentor when it's just like, aren't you ashamed of yourself? This yeah. is what you taught me to like, do. And now you're the, the one who's holding me. Yeah. yeah, it's good. That stuff's always good. I'm hopeful that that's where some of the Inferno 2 <sighs> stuff is That better be a soon. big goddamn mirror is all I'm saying. That cover where Emma is holding Eric and Charles's helmets is one of the greatest things I've yeah. ever seen in my life. I, I have, like, Inferno, like, I'm excited, but, like, I'm a little, I, I, I've got some personal quibbles, but that cover, yeah, I'm perfect. I'm just very excited to see what the hell is going to happen in that book, because they're keeping that close to the best. They really are. One of my other favorite stories about Cannonball that I think may prove relevant again, or at least I hope it does, 
is in Supernovas, the first Mike Carey arc, yeah. when he's targeted by Serafina, one of the children of the vault. And this is interesting to me because he kind of gets a Claremont plot in a way that he never did in the classic run, where it's like, yeah. your mind is taken over. You live an entire life. Yeah. And this like psychosexual kind of mm -hmm. violating experience that Claremont puts a lot of characters through, through sort of psychic trauma and adversity they become stronger sam is never really challenged in that way in the classic material and i think that flipping the script a little bit and having it be sort of a female character doing this to a male character is interesting mm -hmm. seraphina's motivations are very interesting she does it purely out of scientific curiosity she's so alien to like the way we think that she's just like i'd like to know what it's like to have sex and be romantic and like yeah. have a life and be married and like and sam children. is like hurt like, yeah. obviously, as he would be. But, exactly. And and then she's just like, sorry. I mean, like, sorry. I wasn't, wasn't trying to hurt you, but I just had personal, to figure it out. Yeah. Just thought you were good looking. And he fucking kills her. Yeah. I mean, I've been critical. I Especially on the Havoc episode, I went into like, I don't like storylines where you give someone kids and then you take them away. Because mm -hmm. I think that that is a really primordial pain that's a real world kind of pain that it's hard to have superhero characters deal with. I think that's part of why... The Scarlet Witch has been in a rut for 30 years, right? Yep. I think that the exception is when it's a plot where it serves a very specific purpose and the psychology is actually handled well. And here, it's like he experiences 30 years or whatever in this subjective timescape, but two minutes go by. And when he confronts her and he's like, all of these feelings I'm having, and she goes, oh, that's fake. She's like, I made you yeah. feel that. It's, I, I think, like, a key thing there for me that makes it work, because I agree, I think... This like, one works for yeah, me. It really it, does. I think a key thing when doing a plot like that, where you're giving someone a family and then yanking it away, is brevity. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if you string it along, like you said, with Scarlet Witch... Right, this is one issue. Yeah, it's one issue, and it's not even, like, the full issue. It's no, like a it's, few pages it's like a montage. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that works. And the second she tells him... None of it was real. He's like, I just needed you to tell me that. And he yeah, just boom. blasts right through her. And she's a robot. So whatever. She'll yeah. be oh, they're not, it's fine. You know Don't what I mean? Her. They'll be fine. They get better. Not that he knows that. It's a pretty hardcore moment from him. It reminds me of what happens in the Zeb Wells run when yeah. he takes out the Inferno babies, which is also really difficult for him emotionally. But what I like about it is that it puts this male character in this very vulnerable position. Then it gives him an out to not mm -hmm. care about it anymore. But then later in the run, when Carrie does sort of eventually write the character out, he confesses to Iceman that like, actually I'm really still fucked up about this. Yeah, <laughs> like, I course, need to take some time. Of course you are, yeah. yeah. And I like that sort of slow creep of like, why is Cannonball leaving the team? He got grievously injured. Also, remember that thing that happened? That that would, like, ruin someone for life? Yeah. He actually is pretty fucked up about that and needs to, like, go home and decompress for a little bit. And then he did, good. and then he joined. And then he, yeah. yeah. And, and then, then he, he back got hold up. of him right. and traumatized him again. Yes, and I think that now that the children of the vault and sort of the broader homo novissima category that Hickman is digging into are a thing again, I would love to see Cannonball and Serafina come face to face. Especially again. now that Cannonball has, a wife, has a wife and kid. Yes, yeah. and understands what she gave to him and then took away. Mm -hmm. I think it could be a really interesting story. Especially because for her, it's been like 10,000 years. Yeah. Since. So she's just like, that. oh, right, you. Oh, like, you? you know? Yeah. 
right <laughs> it's very i just think that that would be that would be interesting yeah no i i agree i think like especially because i i feel like because like inferno is the big and the next big thing i feel like the the children of the vault have to be like maybe next summer or something like my guess and you know a lot of people this is the thing about X-Men fans. We refuse to like believe that anything good could ever be happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So like people are like, how do we know that Hickman's even going to have a book after Inferno? Of like, course he's going to have a book. Calm you fools. down. Yeah. Like, uh, guess what? They're not going to solicit it seven months in advance. Yeah. It'll They're going to solicit months. it three months in advance. Yeah. Cause that's how comics works. So, you know, I'm sure that we're going to find out what comes next as mm-hmm. Hickman would say soon enough, like this fall, this winter, now here's the thing he keeps surprising me yeah there are plots that i think he's saving for himself but then he gives to other people or like other people i assume come with a pitch and he's like yes run with it but much like moira i think that whatever he's setting up with the shiar empire and sunspot and cannonball yeah that's stuff that i think he's teeing up to tackle himself oh yeah now the vault actually may be part of what Jerry Duggan is doing in the new because you have Sink and Laura on that team. Mm-hmm. So it might make sense to take them there. But either way, I feel confident that these plots are going to Oh, come they home will. There's in- no way they leave those dangling. Yeah. I feel like he's also going to take us to space and the question will be like, can the X-Men line sustain two space books and my answer is at this point Absolutely. I think it's the same three. Yeah. You know, (laughs) with the things they've done in the last couple months, I think that's a really rich vein to tap for these stories. I'd love for you to talk a bit about what you love about the Avengers stuff, because that's something a lot of my listeners may not have read. It's something that I had read very little of until I started doing this podcast. Like I referred to Izzy as Cannonball's alien wife in an early episode. And I got like four emails that were like, actually, Smasher is the first human member of the year. I was like, I'm sorry, guys, I don't read the fucking Avengers. Like, you know, so I went back. She's perfectly charming. I get it now. She's a nice lady. I like, yeah, she's actually a mean lady. No, that's that's why why I I like it, actually. Right. Yeah. So what was it about the character in that material that really spoke to you? Well, I am forever a sucker for the goofballs mm-hmm. on a team. Um, and sometimes that's more successful than others. Um, like, you know, like, if you are trying way too hard, like, you know, like, you're going to love this character. You're going to love them. There you go. Then it's, it's like, like mm, too much. Yeah. But I feel like Hickman does kind of like a Blue Beetle Booster Gold kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. That, that is 100% the vibe they have in that book. There's a moment early on in the run where it's where Hickman, like, I was just like, he's juggling so many characters. Is this going to be able to work? And it's the moment where he establishes that Superior Spider-Man has replaced uh, Peter Parker. It's Otto Octavius. Which I think Hickman also was like, I don't know if this, because that was a curveball that got thrown at Hickman midstream. (laughs) And he, he, hey, did a great job. Rolled with it. it. He's very good at um, that, at rolling with it. There's a bit, and it's early on, it's like, I think before even double digits, where Octavius is eating a salad in the Avengers Tower kitchen, and Sam and Beto just roll up, and they're, they have, like, their arms crossed, and they're just, like, mean mugging him from across, and he's just like, can I help you, children? And he he goes, it's my boy's salad you're eating. And, it, <laughs> and he's like, you know why he needs that salad? Because I'm going to get Sam big. He's going to be yoked. And they just do this whole comedy routine. It's a whole bit, yeah, it's, that they do. It's hilarious. And then, like, you know, Otto just no-sells it and goes, like, I spit in your salad and th- throws it away and walks out of the room. But I was just like, oh, these two are the sweet idiots of this team. 
perfect. I'm on board. I love them. That makes sense. That makes And I, you know, there have been, there are some people, Sunspot fans, I would say specifically, mm-hmm. who don't like what a dramatic departure the mm-hmm. Hickman version of Sunspot is from I, and I understand the character. That very and much I so. get that. Yeah. For me, it's the most interesting and fun I've ever found Sunspot. I so agree. I'm just kind of like, well, you know, sorry, guys. I don't know. I think Ewing does a better job of blending the Hickman goofy Sunspot with like having having a lot of weight and pathos. I think Ewing balanced it out in a way that that made it gel a little mm-hmm. more. Like when, he, when he's previous... running aim and yeah. Like being, yeah. Because that's very of a piece with the Sunspot who was like, I can take over the Hellfire Club and make it good. Exactly. Like that's a yeah. thing he's always sort of been doing. So it works for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They really work for me. I really enjoyed the uh, Hickman arc at the beginning of New Mutants in Dawn of X, the space arc. Yeah, I did too. And it was interesting because of the original New Mutants team, they're like two of the ones I'm not as interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a story about them. Like, oh, honey, it is. It could. The not other be characters more are a, supporting cast. You know, it is literally Sunspot trying to get his boyfriend yes, to like hang out with him. Right. Again. Yeah. But I was so charmed by it that I was like, you know what? I actually really do like these characters. Mm-hmm. I just don't think about them that often. You know what I mean? Oh, for the record, because I'm shocked we have gone this long without talking about Bido and Sam and their relationship to one another. Yes. I absolutely am of the opinion that they are very much in love with each other. However, I think they are both just smart enough to realize... To not go there. They would be a terrible couple. They would be horrible. Yeah. The way I've kind of read it is that... Beto is in love with Sam and that Sam loves Beto, but can't necessarily get there. That's kind of where I've always kind of, and I think that's where it feels like that's how Hickman wrote it. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. You that, that you do not, that the sunspot in Hickman's unions is not a straight man. No. no. And the way he, that thing where it's like, how, where it's like, how many times have you been in love or what, like there's the, whatever that exchange is on like the Shi'ar balcony or you're just like, this is a, romance scene and it's specifically a romance scene where sunspot realizes like it really isn't gonna happen is it yeah and i like my in in a perfect world my beautiful headcanon would be that sam and beto know they should never be the thing for each other but they can be a thing but that like izzy lets them all you know izzy doesn't not like He's they into Izzy, so yeah. like they could, you know, who knows? She could, yeah. They could Scott and they can Logan make it work in, a, in a way yeah. that makes sense for them. Yeah, it actually though is very. It's another way that I think the relationship is very reminiscent of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Because oh God, those those. That's also so how bad. I always read. God. But yeah, well, the, absolutely. But I also always have read that relationship as one where Booster is completely in love with Ted Ted. and that Ted is like not quite able to jump the bridge yeah, and that that's their problem. And given that the dynamic that Hickman writes with these two characters is very akin to that Giffen and Demetrius JLI dynamic with those two characters. Absurdly so, yeah. To me, that's the read I get on it. I think that Sam... Like, I mean, I think that he has a thing with Bobby's, right? Because he and Bobby Drake also have this very homoerotically charged relationship in the 90s and then again in the carry run. But similarly, I don't think Sam can ever quite get himself there. And I don't know if that's because his background is more traditional. I don't know what it is, but it's an interesting, it's, I mean, actually, to go back, it's an interesting parallel to Kitty Pride because before she was 
swashbuckling Captain Kate, who is, to whatever extent, more comfortable with her sexuality than we've ever seen before. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, honey, that, that sigh and a yeah is what I'm going to say. <laughs> I think that these are the two characters we watched grow up. 100%. She always had the same. I mean, the way she treats Sean in mechanics and it's the absurd. aftermath is yeah. dreadful. And the way she treats Rachel is also terrible in this very specific way where it's like she can't bring herself to be like, I'm dating a girl. She can't yep. get there. And I think that will change in the future, hopefully. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. But, you know, Sam, I think, never will quite get there because now he's married to his wife and he doesn't mm. have to worry about it anymore in that way. Yeah. And it's an interesting story to me, but, like, the direction I would want to see it go in is, well, then let Beto date a different guy. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that is a story I would like to see that's going to be a tricky one without making Sam seem like kind of a dick. Yeah, or without making any other male love interest you give better Feel like into secondary like a to, consolation yeah. prize. It's that problem where it's like, oh, we can't use her name on Toya right now, so suddenly Kate Kane's in love with Maggie Sawyer, and you're like, why exactly? You know, like that yeah. did not work for me, at least. And I think that's the problem, is sometimes when you can't go there with the couple that fans have been really invested in. Yeah, but sometimes you make that relationship and turns out, oh no, you struck gold and that's a good thing and a bad thing. And a bad thing, thing because yeah. now any other love interest is not going to measure up for people. If Ilyana dates literally anyone ever who isn't Kate, I'm going to be unhappy yeah. about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, like, I will be... I'll just be real. I wouldn't be thrilled, you know? I will be, I will be overjoyed if Kate... If it's a woman, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be, like, good. I'll, be, I'll but... be happy. Like, I'll be happy if Kate, Ilyana, or Rachel date a woman. Yeah. I'll be pretty happy if one of them dates another one of that trio... And I'll be ecstatic if they just admit, oh, wait, we're a, we're a poly couple. Sure, sure. My preference has always been Kate and Ilyana together. I I love, I mean, I have... Yeah, the, but yeah, no, I know. I, yeah. got, Zoe's showing her soul sword tattoo. Which has Lockheed, which has Lockheed like, it. posed yeah. on it. Right, so like, you get me. Yeah. I actually, ever since... Claremont's House of M story have really liked the vibe between Betsy and Rachel, and I really like where that might be going now. I have talked about how good Betsy and Rachel are appearing to many people. Yeah, so, I'm yeah, excited absolutely. to see where that might go because I think that would be really great. And also, like, mm -hmm. I've said this, I would like for Rachel and Kate's relationship to be something that, like Mystique and Destiny, we established was always there. I think they would be interesting as exes, and you could do flashback stories, but I don't think necessarily that, like, that's the future for those two characters. Whereas I think that Kate finally realizing which Rasputin she was supposed to be dating the whole yeah. time. Oh, it's that's such a plot an that I think is like very rich. Also, for right I mean, now. like, like we had when Kate came back to life, Yana showed up with a mariachi band singing about long forbidden love. Finally that was wild. And I'm just like, okay. Whereas Rachel greeted her like an ex. I yeah, thought. like hey, like it's yeah, just like hey it. there, like that's how I am with my exes who I'm friends with. It's mm. like a different energy, you know. Anyway. I digress, but not that far because this is the male male ver this is, is the, the closest yeah. that oh, any of those male students I think get to that classic Claremont subtextual relationship yeah. is these two. And it's mostly writers post Claremont who do Yeah, it was always there, but then Hickman like cranked it up to eleven. Yeah, and even like 
I think the John Francis Moore road trip era, which Cannibal's not in because he's on the X-Men, but he like pops in occasionally. The love triangle with Tabby always feels very sort of like it's kind of also about this vibe between yeah. them. And we can't say it because it's 1998 or whatever, but like that's kind of what we're talking about. Because like Beto and Tabby are not meant to be. Although I actually think if they gave it another go now, it would be really funny. It, that would be the like, that would be, I think, an issue law. Like do a one shot. Yeah, it's a one that. shot where like they're together again because why not? And it's just a disaster. The biggest disaster. I, look, hey, I love mess. You want to give yeah. me that me- Like the capital of the Shi'ar Empire is a ruin because they had a date. Beautiful. Perfect. What's interesting is that same time in X-Force does the Sam and Lila storyline kind of again, but does it with Jimmy and Risqué, who's like also a thief, also mm-hmm. like morally ambiguous, that he's the good guy. Jimmy's a sweet team. boy. I love, I love Jimmy. He's like the noble one on the team at that point, who's like the hero kind of of that book, which is wild because it never really early on been his role. But once Cannonball's out... Jimmy's the logical choice. Yeah, because Beto's not really that guy. He's never really been that guy. You know, like he's not going to be like, I'm the Boy Scout. That's just not his personality. Well, I think now is probably a good time for us to get into the listener questions because we got... An absolute metric fuck ton of questions wow, for this okay. episode. Wow, I'm honestly shocked. Well, I think what it is, so actually I regretted saying anything today because I already had a oh, bunch. No. I had, And then I said something too. Oh, right, no. I had one, two, three, I had like 10 already. And then when I posted something today and then you retweeted it with your own comment, like, and you know, you have your own ex-Twitter following, we suddenly got over the course of the day, I just got one 10 minutes ago. Oh so, my Sorry, God. I think you may have been a little too late to the, to the party. Wow, if you want to message me on Twitter, <laughs> I will answer it. But we got, a, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 since I made that tweet oh just today. Oh my God, people. There you go, you never know. And guess what? We can't answer all those questions on this no, podcast. Insane. So I'm gonna be selective, yeah. but if you don't hear yours read, it's because there were over 20 questions, 25 questions or something sent in for this episode, and we simply don't have time. Thank you for writing in. We always appreciate your thoughts here on Cerebro. Very sweet. But so let's get right to it because I don't want to be here for four hours. I can't do it anymore. I can't edit those four-hour episodes I don't blame anymore. you. I, I want to eat it. dinner. Yeah, exactly, right? So... Sam Guido writes, Hi, Connor and Zoe. I'm a huge New Mutants fan, but for me, Sam was always overshadowed by his more outspoken classmates like Danny, Roberto, and Ilyana. It wasn't until I watched the New Mutants movie where the character was almost non-existent that I realized how integral he was to the team dynamic and developed a better appreciation for Sam. Sometimes a team of young heroes just needs a dad friend. My question has to do with what to do with the character now. I haven't read a 90s or 2000s story about Sam that has really gotten at the heart of the character. Often he's been separated from his classmates and put on teams with older heroes where I find him to be a lot less interesting. Right now, Sam is enjoying domesticity in space with his wife, his boyfriend, and his son. But if a writer did want to bring him into an ongoing story, where could Sam fit into the Krakoa era? Should he be having space adventures with Beto, helping Danny and Sean teach the younger mutants on Krakoa? What story or group of characters would get at the heart of the character while also respecting everything that's happened to him in the years since love the pod and the discord and i'm excited to hear your thoughts on this sweet country boy sam honestly like the disclaimer you always give like hey if i just happen to secretly guess right please still do it yeah do it 
Um, honestly, you, like, we've been talking about space. I think that Sam, Beto, and Izzy leading some form of a Star Jammers book would absolutely. be pretty fantastic. I think that that's absolutely a way to go. I think that Star Jammers is a title that is begging to be used. It really, it's such a cool title. Like, it just yeah. sounds cool. And I think that Hickman sort of set a stage for that with the initial arc where the New Mutants interact with the Star Jammers. I think that Beto and Hepzibah on a team together would be really funny. Perfect. <laughs> disasters. Beautiful disasters. And like, you know, Deathbird is in the mix now. Like, that would be just a... F- I, I do feel like whatever Hickman is going to do next is going to involve the Shi'ar. And yeah. I'm hoping that I'm right and I'm excited to see where that goes because I do think that that right now is the place it makes sense to have the character his wife is there his life now is there and as much as I do love the Zab Wells run on New Mutants the problem for Cannonball and I we sort of talked about this earlier that he and Boom Boom are in this a little bit of a no man's land is that I think because he's the one who graduated it's hard to put him back with the kids again well, not even, like, I feel like there's, space is the right place for him because he's kind of done it all. Right. He's taught, he's been a student, he's been an X-Man, he's led teams. Like, that's fine. There are other characters who have also done that, that keep mm-hmm. finding new angles. But when his origin was, I am the one who grew up. I am right. the one, like... It feels regressive a lot of yeah, the time, no I matter think, what, to put him back on that team. So putting him in a whole new arena and letting him shine there is, I think, definitely the answer. Yeah, because, like, after Wells is done, DNA write him out real fast. Oh, yeah. It's just tricky to figure out where he still fits into that team. And they write him out in, like, a, a decently fun way. Like, sure, I yeah. I read that issue, but... And I think that it's actually a lot like... Monet now I think that mm-hmm. she's the cannonball of her generation of in Gen the sense X, of yeah. yeah that she graduated to the team she is a character who felt aged up over time in a way that well with her it was actually pretty abrupt but then it stuck in a way that her classmates don't like the idea of a book where Monet is back on a team with husk and chamber and skin would feel insane weird to me. yeah the, the only one like the like, because Sink just got, but he just like, got that. He push. just got that. Push. Yeah, and Jubilee has always been like you know half in one foot, half in the other. Well, she pre-existed. She so was an X Man. Then right, she stepped back. Her own and then, thing. Yeah. She also was out of publication for so long after oh, the decimation yeah. that she's like a tricky one to figure out. Generally, that's an episode that is coming up in the schedule. And Good luck with that one. It's a, yeah. Oof, uh, tricky Have fun one. talking about new warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Someone on Twitter yesterday was like, Cerebrocast told me not to worry about this, but I'm reading it anyway. Don't do that. It's not very good, is it? I was like, I told you not to yeah, worry about it's it. It's an in- interesting idea. Doesn't go anywhere. Execution. Does not nope. go anywhere. This yeah. is the new warriors volume that's specifically like some decimated mutants with tech. It's not, yep. don't, don't worry. It's not good. Don't worry about it. But yeah, so I think that space is where he should be right now. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to have, I mean, if he had won the X-Men election, I will say I was shocked at how poorly he did did in the X-Men election. Wow, my boy. He was one of the only ones I thought had a chance at beating Polaris because he's a character with name recognition because he was so big in that 90s Joe Mad Mm -hmm. moment, late 90s. 
And so was Marrow, and they both did really poorly in the vote. For the record, I was team Marrow. I wanted her on it. Yeah, Um, I mean, I think that either of them would have been interesting. I think Marrow would have been a weird fit for the story. The story that Jerry is now telling. And we didn't know that at the time. No, we didn't know that. And also, the story would have changed, Changed, I imagine, depending. But Cannonball, former Avenger, would have made a ton of sense he, on yeah, that. Yeah, honestly, he team. would have been like the perfect, like, you know, look, we have an Avenger. I mean, Rogue right. is also an Avenger, but. Which I hate, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> we have to just deal with it. It's, you know what? It was healing. It was a healing experience for her. It helped her get over all the Carol yeah. agitas, so whatever, fine. He would have made sense on that team. That's a place you could have taken him. But there isn't really any other book in the line right now where I would put him. Same. Like, I love that boy. I would love to see him in a book, but there's just no place for him right now. Like, even Sword, which is the space book, isn't the right flavor of space book for him right now. I think there's a reason that Sam and Beto aren't in that book. Yeah, it's, it is it is a very singular story with Brand and what she is building Sword into. And the tone, they wouldn't fit nope. the tone, in my opinion. It just wouldn't quite I agree. be yeah. right. I did think when we saw in the solicits the phrase Protocol V, Protocol 5, I was like, is that a reference to Citizen V? Citizen V, which was Which was Beto, yeah. and I thought that would be, but it didn't end up going there. And you know what? That's fine. Yeah, it's better that way. I do hope that Hickman has a plan for them. I just do feel like they are so beloved. I feel like so he, has, he loves them so much. Yeah. There are so many pieces being put. I mean, I feel like in all the online service about Brett Booth and all of that, which I don't want to get into, yeah. people kind of did blow past that one issue of the Hickman X-Men yep. because of that controversy. That issue, though does set up a lot of plot stuff in the Shi'ar Empire for these two characters that hasn't been dealt with yet. So I think that's where it's going. And I think that's the right place for it to go. I didn't notice this until like a week or two ago. There was apparently like when they did those foreshadowing covers. Yeah, one of them is Beto on the throne of the Shi'ar Empire. Yeah, which, good luck, Shi'ar Empire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. D. Cisneros writes, Hi, Connor and Zoe. Love the pod. I'm always the most excited when you get to a New Mutants episode because those kids are my favorite. And I feel like many of them have been really put through the ringer. Side eyes Rain Sinclair, which is how I know ah. it's going to be a good Cerebrocast episode. Apropos of messy character work, can you please explain the whole external thing with Sam? No. Nope. I think to most people it's a big dwy, but he's one of my faves, so I do worry about it. He was an external, but then he wasn't, but he did come back to life that one time, but he's not included in A's external ritual in Teeny's Excalibur, so I feel pretty safe saying he's not an external i'm sure you'll get into the weeds on this one the externals are nothing but weeds thanks <laughs> so i've already gone into this a little bit in the character file i just want to assure you again that you do not need to worry about this seriously do not truly never think about it again as long as you live mm-hmm Watch Highlander. There you go. Watch Highlander. That's it. But also, like, watch Highlander if you want to understand what's up with those other characters who are externals. Cannonball's not, and it's fine. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Imagine Cannonball in it. See how weird that feels. And And just be like, oh, I'm glad that Jeff Loeb threw that out. Yeah, because quite honestly, it's a bad storyline, and hopefully we will never see the like of it again. Fingers crossed. 
Harini Marchati writes, Hello, Connor and Zoe. I've been so glad to discover the pod this summer. It not only got me into X-Men comics, it introduced me to the wonderful Cerebro Discord. I'm truly so grateful to have a place to talk X-Men with so many lovely people. I know almost nothing about Sam, but I have gathered that he, along with Danny, fulfills the level-headed leader role on the New Mutants team, and by extension, the New Mutants as a friend group. Do you think this is still the role for him in X-Books going forward, or do you think that with all the changes to both the X-Men status quo into Sam's own life, that he should find a new niche? Should he get involved in the cosmic side of the X-Men, or has he been effectively written off? Love the pod. Very excited to listen to this episode and figure out what Sam's deal is. Best, Harini. This covers a little bit of what we talked about already, but I liked the question about like leading and leadership mm-hmm. specifically, because I do think that that was his role in the past. I think that the Zeb Wells run on New Mutants is in it, large it part- It was the, the perfect like About how he's that. not yeah. that, really. And that's that's the thing. I think Sam, like Sam's good at leading a team. Like he can he can do he can it. do it. Yeah, he's good at inspiring people. He's like a good sounding board. But it's not really what he wants to do. Yeah, I think his role is forever going to be like I said, the big brother. Like he mm-hmm. is the emotional support leader. He will help pick you up off the ground when you've fallen. He's not the guy who wants to. He's not going to have. 80 contingency plans in case, like, you know, Onslaught shows up. He just wants to make sure you're not sad. Andre Hetu writes, Hey, pals, I've been wondering, do you think that Sam's inclination to stay with the Shi'ar Empire says something about his relationship with mutants? I thought that was an interesting question. Huh. Um, I think that's interesting, but no. Yeah, I think it's more just about he's more attached to this wife and child that he now has as opposed yeah, to like, like he I've never seen Sam as anything other than like loving that he's mutant a mutant. and proud like yeah, big time, extremely you know? So, yeah. I do think though that like Wolverine, Sam and Beto are characters who try to escape the politics of mutant yeah. stuff to some extent that's why they made sense as avengers like it was sort of like we'll take this opportunity sure in that same sort of like havoc way where it's like yeah like havoc's always felt uncomfortable with this stuff but unlike havoc where i do think that there's like a self-loathing problem there isn't any of that really yes sam Sam and beto just like they just want people to like them yeah they're very they feel very self-assured in who they are as far as like their mutant identity and thus they're just like I don't feel the need to like defend this and like make this like I'm not an activist yeah, but like do you exactly. have a problem with mutants cuz that's fucked up. Yeah, I'll punch you in the teeth but I I'm, I don't like if you just want to hang out and talk about football I can do that. Yeah, yeah. Like they can hang with the Avengers in a way that I think mm-hmm. is makes sense but without being like treasonous to the mutant yeah, cause. Exactly. Like it's not the same vibe. It's not as weird as when like Wolverine joined the Avengers that first time. But even then it got it got better over time, I think. I got it because he's always had those connections with characters like Captain America and Black Widow yeah, oh yeah. and Carol Danvers and like so it made sense to me. He's like very apolitical as mutants go. So mm-hmm. like that I kind of got it just felt like such a forced marketing move to me that yeah, I was like it, eh. it got better and then I think around AVX it became like yeah, that's what, where it becomes untenable. What the fuck You're are like, you doing? Yeah, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. I think part of the reason why he feels comfortable being so fully retired at the moment is because mutant kind is in the best position it's ever been in. Yeah. So he doesn't feel like he had, like when mutants were in the shit in like the early nineties, he was, he fought, he was there. A terrorist. I mean, he was like a freedom fighter for mutants. So I, you know, I think that he's game, but now that 
other people are handling it, he's relieved not to have to handle it. I mean, and I think the thing that really shows, like, the by far the most important thing for Sam is family. Like, yes, z- that's always been his watchword, yeah. right? And um, and I think it shows that like he not only loves mutants, he he is like he appreciates what Krakoa is doing. The fact that he went back to Earth for Crucible. Yes, to support his sister, Melody. Yeah, he was there. Yeah. Yeah, like, because he straight up was like, nah, I'm busy in space. I don't want to do, you know, mutant stuff on Earth. But my sister's doing a thing that's important. I'm going to come. He went right back. Um, And it was a big mutant thing, and it was brutal. Like, he almost jumped out of his seat to fight Apocalypse, but that's okay. It is that family is the most important thing. He also lost his father when he was young. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to him to be a present father to his child. So him being a stay-at-home dad. It's it's sweet. It makes so much, again, it's one of those things where a writer wrote one of their favorite characters into a happy ending, and it makes so much sense that I don't see the need to rock the boat too much. <laughs> I feel like what you do now is find a new story to tell with that character as like a second act, you know? I just, I'm, I'm worried we're gonna get like the, the Luke Cage and Jessica Jones where it's like no one figured out what to do. With these characters, yeah. so they just don't do anything. They just constantly anymore. like almost break up or like the baby gets kidnapped or like that's, that's been it for like a decade at this point. I think that Gambit and Rogue were in danger of that and that's why I think the best thing they could have done and why I'm, and I'm glad they did it. Is put them on different teams. Yeah, Jerry said yeah. when he suggested it to Teeny, she was like, that's a great idea. I have all kinds of ideas I can do with Gambit because it gives him more stuff to do. Because I think when you have the couple on the team together... It erodes their individuality as characters. They become a set. Yeah. And I think that splitting up those characters, especially characters like Roger Gambit, or now, I think, like Sam and Izzy, who are not going to break up, presumably. It yeah, makes I sense to shocked. give them different things to do. Now, that said, if they're on the Star Jammers together and doing stuff, I think that they have enough drama intrinsic to their relationship in the sense that she is a loyal subject of the Shi'ar Empire. And he's mostly just there for her. That's a thing that I think could be really interesting. So there's stuff you could do in their relationship that I think would be interesting that wouldn't necessitate breaking them up, at least not permanently. Like, let them go through it. But Yeah, like, you know, they can have a a hard time. Yeah, they could separate for a couple months because they're mad at each other. Like, we could you could do stuff that would be interesting, mm. but I do think they're going to end up circling back to each Especially other. since, like, they're, they're a Hickman creation. Like, the, he he did that. He did that. He likes yeah. them together. I think that that's going to be certainly for the foreseeable where the mm. character remains. But hopefully the story in that area of the Marvel... Is interesting. Omniverse is going to yeah. expand. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Jacob Rosenberger asks if Sam Guthrie is the queer Kentucky icon that he and other Kentuckians deserve. And I would say yes, but again, I'm not sure that he could ever get himself. Yeah, there. he he is, but that crossing that line is I mean, like, even like I think on the list of like even beyond like the in-universe, like, which I do think that's a very compelling angle of like his his own internal issues. I think on the list of X-Men characters who are likely to be officially queer, Cannonball is very, very low on that list. Here's my thing, and this is not to... I know and love many bisexuals in ostensibly straight marriages to Mm. an outside observer, and I'm not trying to denigrate that experience at all, but I do think that when a character is so locked into an ostensibly hetero-looking relationship like this... 
it almost feels like a cheat to have that be like the officially queer character because then you never have to do anything with it. Yeah. Like you would just have him say it, but then never ever do anything romantic with a man. And it would be like, well, okay. Like the ship has sailed a little bit, unfortunately. There are still so many big like wins that need to happen with representation in yeah. comics that mm-hmm. that feels like if you're like if you're going to take that step and make a significant character it could maybe be one that would have a bit more impact. I agree and I think also that it would feel to me a little redundant with the subtextual plot between yeah. Scott and Jean and Logan, which again, I've 100%. said this many times, I don't know that we're ever going to get anything more than we got in the pride issue, which I loved the little yeah. bits we got in the pride issue. But I think that's a corporate question. That's way, way oh, higher than yeah. anybody we're oh, ever going to get to talk to. Those are suits yeah. whose names we will never know. But I do appreciate that story. I think that what is being done with it insofar as it can be textual is really cool. And I wouldn't want I feel like if you did it again, but with characters who are less famous, it, it would wouldn't have the feel same. Both, it would feel less cool for Sam, and then I think, and it would also, also like derivative, and from, would take away from yeah. what's going on with the major yeah. characters, even if we can't quite say it. You know, yeah. um, so that's sort of where I'm at with it. But I, you know, I I do think it's time for Sunspot to be like a bisexual character. 100 percent. Yeah. If you're gonna like look, if you were gonna make cannonball buy fuck that make sunspot buy. yeah Ooh, and then done. you could yeah. e- like and again i honestly would be fine with I, I think actually it could be powerful to have a scene where they talk about it and sam is like you know i love you more than anyone i just it's not like that I can't for yeah, me that's, that's just not how i love you right yeah. and for Beto to have to sit with that i think yeah. that could be an interesting story that hasn't really been told before fabian wanted to do that with richter and shatterstar in the early 90s and obviously that relationship evolved in a very different direction very different yeah but when richter was supposed to be a straight character that was what was going to happen there and i think that you could do something there where cannonball is a straight character but has this intimate emotional friendship with a queer guy mm-hmm. and we could pick it apart and do kind of interesting stuff with it. I think that would be interesting. I would be into yeah. that. William Bowling writes, hi Connor and Zoe. I want to begin by saying that I'm so very thankful for the Cerebro podcast. You reignited the passion I have for the X and provided a source of entertainment and relaxation for this worn out grad student. I would have never started buying and reading comics again if it were not for you. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. That said, let's talk about Krakoa's premier Appalachian mutant. As a gay Kentuckian, it is always frustrating to see Appalachian people portrayed as rednecks, hillbillies, and uneducated bigots. Sam seems to be an exception and a great representative for his home state. Although I'm still catching up with all his appearances, I would love to see Marvel explore his origins more thoroughly and examine how Appalachian culture would mix with mutant culture. I could only imagine Sam fixing the team some cornbread and soup beans after a long mission and casually introducing his friends to folk music and our queen Dolly Parton. How do you all see his heritage fitting into his larger narrative moving forward? And do you think Marvel has done a great job in past issues? I can't wait to continue my reading list and get to know more about the most prominent Kentuckian with an ex-gene, Jennifer Lawrence does doesn't count. As far as the New Mutants movie goes, his portrayal was okay. However, that accent was so wrong. Sorry, Charlie Heaton. Best wishes to you both and all hail the Sun Queen, Will. Thank you for paying tribute to Zaldane. It's important to do. Well, first of all, to defend Charlie Heaton, I think that asking a British actor to do a Kentucky accent is cruel and unusual. That is that is a dangerous game 
to play. Yeah. There's a movie where like Andrew Garfield plays like Kentucky coal miner like back in the day and it's just like, hun, who did this to you? Yeah, like, the only context <laughs> where it works is if like it's intended to be to like be outrageous. Goofy, right. Like Daniel Craig doing um, right. like, Joe like, Bang. And in, do, yeah, but yeah. doing an intentionally yeah. ridiculous accent. So I think that where this has shown most is in stories about his family, the stories where he goes back home to the farm, the stories where he interacts with his siblings. I think the character that it would be worth doing this with is actually Paige. Yeah, 100%. Because she's still around and not doing much. You know, they called her Hayseed. It was like kind of a thing. It's hard because Paige is another character who she kind of got reined to a lesser degree in the sense that she got written to three or four really damaging storylines. Yep. Thank you, Jason Aaron. Yeah. I think Chuck Austin and Jason Aaron, I think yep. both did a real number on that character. And it's been somewhat hard to bring her back around. I think Christina Strain did some repair work. Yeah. I know Hickman is fond of Paige. I mean, she was in Hoxpox. Yeah, which was yeah. random that she was what on the Mother pick, Mold team. But it was cool. That's why I thought she was going to be on the X-Men team. Because yeah. I was like, that must be like King. But, but I don't know. So whatever is eventually going to happen with her, I think she's the character you could do that with. First of all, she's smarter than Sam. She is. I like to give her a hard time because it's funny. She's been written as kind of dumb by, again, certain authors. But she's actually But she's actually brilliant. supposed to be intelligent, like quite intelligent. So I think that a way to take that character would be, you know, something that hasn't been delved into as deeply as it could be. And I think this is also what you do with the character of Colossus, is the class politics on Krakoa and the fact yeah. that they are pretty revolutionary. The fact that Krakoa is a no-scarcity, no-money thing going on. Now, the system of government is very sus, but I think Inferno is going to be about that. I think that having a character like Colossus, who is a socialist, or having a character like Husk, who is from a very working-class background yeah. and is like a union girl, mm -hmm. you know, I think having characters like that dig into, like, what Krakoa has now provided for people or what it can provide for people it's an angle that i would be fascinated to read but also like i get why no one's i get why people yet. don't because yeah. here's the problem once you ask the question you've asked it's the question there. yeah this is the thing about politics in comics is once you ask a very well actually it's a lot like george rr R. martin's comment once about tolkien it was like well what do we know about aragorn's tax policy like why do we know he's going to be a good king right we know he's going to be a good king because tolkien doesn't ask us whether he's going to be a good king he we're just us. told yeah. that he's going to be a good king so we accept it once you start asking questions and i think this is honestly it's interesting two new series that launched this year that I think were meant to complicate these questions and ask what's the deal with Krakoa in that sense? Like, should we dig into these deeper questions? X-Corp and Way of X, mm -hmm. I think have met with something of a mixed response in part because they are asking the questions. And sometimes the answers that you're going to get, once you've opened that door, it can be hard to satisfy people, yeah. right? Like, it can be hard to say, here's an emphatic answer to the question, as opposed to like, well, here's the question and we're raising it. But then the kind of fan who 
wants to know about Aragorn's tax policy is going to be very nitpicky about a book like that. Comic book fans? Yeah, right? What? You know, and I'm enjoying both of those books, but I do think that they have taken on a lot of world-building work that is complicated, and it makes sense that a lot of the other books elide or gloss over some of the more odd or tricky cultural questions Mm. about Krakoa when it's like nuts and bolts stuff. I cannot let a uh, question where we talk about husk a whole lot uh, go by without a shout out to one of my uh, co-writers at Comics XF, Karen Charm, who is the world's biggest husk fan. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Zoe, because it's possible that in a couple <gasps> weeks, Karen Charm is coming onto this very show to talk about Husk. Hell yeah, they rule, and that's going to be a great episode. I'm pretty excited about it. So there is a preview that I was not going to share yet, but I'm sharing it now because <laughs> you brought it up. And you know what? You're absolutely right. So Karen, if you're listening, you're great at what you do, and uh, I'm excited to talk about page view. I actually... That's going to be a funny episode because I am so hard on page and <laughs> it's just going to be, I feel like this one and like whichever poor Wolfsbane fan ends up doing oh, the Wolfsbane boy. episode, yeah, good, that's going to be because God. I'm just, yeah. and it's like, it's not, it's not that I want to be mean or anything, but I just, these are characters I cannot help but clown on like relentlessly, yeah. you know? Hey, I'm the same way with Rain. I yeah. I just yeah. can't, I can't stop. I can't stop myself. So anyway, I do think to go back that, the like overlap between like what does it mean to be a working class coal country American and what does it mean to be Krakoan? I think that's something you do with Paige. Yeah. Because I think Sam left that milieu behind as a character a long yeah. time ago. And I like just for a, a brief to get to the point where like I as far as like how well tactfully they handled like Sam as like a country yokel, they definitely play that up, uh, especially in the earlier days. Mm-hmm. But like, look, I'm born and raised in Oklahoma, so I, I, it's not the same as being Appalachian, but I get it. I think comics are always gonna, you know, kind of hit the broad notes, but where it counts, I feel like they do right by Sam as far as... For me, it's a lot like how I think Claremont is about racial diversity yeah. with his characters, which is that, like, it's not always elegant. Mm-hmm. And it can be stereotypical at times, but I always feel like he is doing it out of a genuine affection for the concept of, like, representing people. It never feels like it's mocking Sam. And I think that presenting this character who was from poverty was bold at the time. Mm -hmm. It's not something you see that often. Most superhero characters do not come from poverty or didn't at that time anyway. They're usually from a middle-class background or very wealthy like Batman. But like Kitty comes from the suburbs of Chicago and it's like, this is a character who you're supposed to relate to, target reader of a Marvel comic, which is presumably Mm -hmm. a middle-class kid in the suburbs or the city around specifically of Chicago or New York right like that's you know the it's I mean I I once referred to Kitty as being from Scarsdale which is inaccurate she's from Deerfield but Deerfield is kind of the Scarsdale of Chicago Scarsdale's a New York suburb that's very Jewish oh the slip that I made I thought was telling because it was (laughs) like I just position I just put her in Westchester which is where I happen to be from oh wow I didn't even know that lord of course you turned out to be a giant x-men fan Jesus I'm sitting 20 minutes from Salem Center right now good lord yeah so that's that is that is an important yeah 
bit of subtext. Mike Chu asks, greetings, Connor and Zoe, longtime listener, first time caller. In the interest of keeping the podcast praise concise, I will simply say that it consistently whips ass. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm still working my way through the Claremont New Mutants run, but my question about Cannonball is, why does it seem like he's frequently getting stripped down to his skivvies? He notably spends half of New Mutants 21 flying around while wearing nothing but a towel. And when Lila Cheney teleports him to her Dyson Sphere in New Mutants Annual 1, the first thing she does is put him in leather bondage gear, which, okay, work. Anyway, is this a recurring bit, or am I just being horny on main again? P.S. How old are Sam and Lila Cheney supposed to be when they get together? <laughs> he's got to be at least 18 by then, right? P.P.S. Justice for Noel. All right, fine. I have to make it clear. I don't actually like hate Adol. I just you, he's just like a nothing character to me. And so when I, I, I don't mean to be the Anol fans, and I have learned there are lots of them. There are many. Yeah. I don't mean to be disrespectful. He just does nothing for me. Let's say, and hopefully someone will change my mind. As for your question, Claremont was into this kind of farce in particular, like the you know. Uh oh, my clothes! Like it's yeah, like a very running around naked screwball comedy kind of thing, and I think that's what it is. Particularly because he's like the farm boy in a fish out of water kind of thing. Yeah, and plus he is both ripped and also a beanpole. He is like yeah. So you get the physical comedy aspect of like this giant, the gawky, gawky lanky, because yeah. he's like six foot twelve or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's just very. That's probably also part of why you relate to this character. You're very tall. I am six two. Yeah, but like in heels now. In heels, I am six five. Yeah, that's yeah, that's tall, babe. As for how old they are when they get together, again, don't worry about it with ages. But we're meant to understand that he same as is college age legal. Yeah, yeah. But she will later point out that like she's still a little too old for him, and that's mm. why it doesn't work out. But Claremont puts them right back together as soon as he has the opportunity. So you know, the point is, it's a little much, but it's not inappropriate. Is what yeah. we're supposed to take away. It's like an eyebrow raise, but not a. a it's more like why? Why shape. does Lila want to yeah. date this eighteen-year-old? And it's like because she finds him endearing. He's a goofball. Yeah, and like she only hangs out with complete scumbags who are like intergalactic smugglers. So mm-hmm. like, or rock stars. Like so, you know, he's refreshing on both levels. Caitlin Fife writes, hello, Connor and Zoe. Connor, first off, thank you for creating a space where X-Fans, queer and otherwise, can share their thoughts, frustrations, hopes, and love for these characters. I have a question of sorts about Cannonball. It's actually maybe more of a springboard for discussion, but Sam's the character who brought it to mind. I started reading Uncanny as a kid back in the 80s, and like other queer and specifically trans kids, it spoke to me back when I didn't even have a language for what I was experiencing. As I've gotten older, I've stepped away from the franchise and come back, stepped away and come back because the characters still spoke to me. You could take the girl out of Krakoa, but you can't take Krakoa out of the girl, I guess. This past decade, as the world has changed somewhat for trans folk, I began to hope that people like me might actually start to appear within the pages of X-Men. My most recent return was during Matthew Rosenberg's run on Uncanny. Like a lot of trans readers, I was frustrated by the issue in which Rain was killed in what was clearly meant to be a trans panic murder allegory. And in my anger, I got to thinking that the only way we were going to get legitimate lasting trans rep in the X-Men is if already existing characters came out, much like Jean-Paul and Bobby came out long after they were well-established. And I got to thinking, like I guess a lot of trans X-readers do from time to time, about who among the X-Men might be closeted or living stealth, or who might come to realize their gender identity. I'm writing this question this week because Sam Guthrie is who immediately left to mind for me. I don't know if there's any textual evidence for it, but he reminds me of my closeted self back when I was trying to be one of the guys, hanging with my cis straight friends while trying to hold on to my real self inside. I could totally see him as a closeted trans woman. I don't think anyone at Marvel would ever write him that way. It's just me. And I'm pretty dubious at this point about the possibility of any Marvel character coming out as trans. (sighs) 
But if they were to do a storyline like that, I wonder which characters you or your guests thought might lend themselves to a meaningful exploration of gender identity within the franchise, particularly in the context of Krakoa and its resurrection protocols, which complicate things. It's an odd question, so if you don't get to it, no worries. The Pride Month episodes have been great. Looking forward to the Back to Back Sunspot and Cannibal podcast. Take care and make mine Zaladane, Kate Fife. I wanted to ask this one because I thought you would have interesting things to say about it. Yeah, you no, I, um, I have thoughts. Yeah. Um, uh, I definitely think that there needs to be both. You have mm-hmm. to have existing characters who are revealed to have been trans all along, and you need to have characters make that journey, um, which is, that's the big one. That's going to be really hard to sell to readers, sell to executives, sell to editors. It's hard. I have faith that it will happen. I think it's going to take a lot of work to make it happen because, again, like you have to convince executives, you have to convince Disney, you have to convince all these people of things, right? I mean, I will say, I think that half of that is now happening because they have let Vita Ayala create mm-hmm. several new trans characters in New Mutants. Yes, which I wish they were more prominent, but I understand why they aren't. I liked what we saw in the most recent issue of New Mutants, though, which is that Magic and Warpath have kind of taken those students specifically under their and wing. And they are like another class. They're a class of students, and they're not all trans yeah. characters, but like two or three of them are. Mm-hmm. And I think that given the way that Vita has been writing New Mutants, where the focus sort of moves around by arc, mm-hmm. it feels like Magic and Warpath are the characters who are coming due for a big story. For an, an arc, yeah. And so hopefully those characters, Brother Nature, and I forget Leo's code name, but like those characters, I'm hoping that they... They, I believe Vita actually tweeted today that they were doing Brother Nature and Leo in an upcoming issue. So like that's they, the thing. Yeah. I think that's yeah key. And I think having a trans author writing the book is obviously mm-hmm. massive. Absolutely. yeah. I think that the other thing, though, and this is something I 100% agree on, and I've said it on the show before, I do think that you need to have a character come out who has existed for a long time. In my heart of hearts, there is not a character in, well, maybe there's one over at DC. It's Rachel. Rachel is the most trans woman that has ever existed on the planet to me. I remember I talked to you and Nola about that once and I hadn't it hadn't never occurred to me, but I could see it for sure. It's like everything about her journey, her trauma, her struggles, even after coming to the past and like being able to live as herself, the Mm -hmm. struggles she had there. It just it hits home in a way that no other ex character really has up to the point where like, I mean, whenever like we'll talk about it later, but like whenever Valentine and I are making comics, right? that is a trans Rachel in there. Um, like, like we make sure she's got the, the flag pin. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is her. Um, the great thing that spiral tempts her with when she leaves yeah. uncanny is I will give you the body that you want. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there that, uh, that yeah. I totally see. My inclination is always Emma especially after I spoke to Annie Nascenti in that episode and she sort of implied as much in terms of Chris's creation of the character. I think it's always been there. Morrison really, I think, goes there with her a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, like, I would I would definitely, I would not be upset in any way, shape, or form if that happened. It, she's just not my my top pick. 
I would love that. I don't know if it'll ever happen. I think that what you want to do is, like you said, establish that a character has been stealth the entire time. Yeah. And listen, like, will there be like a nasty reaction to it? Absolutely. Because people suck. It's it's impossible. Like, it's going to happen. But there was a nasty reaction to Iceman. A really nasty reaction to Iceman. Iceman being gay, which is something that writers have been trying to do for 30 years. So, like, you know, there's always going to be a blowback. I think that it's overdue. I think that you do it with a character. I think with a woman character. I think there are a lot of women in this franchise that you could do it with who would be able to speak to a lot of the controversies about trans women that are happening in the world right now, a lot of that oppression in an allegorical way that ties it into the mutant metaphor. I think there would be a lot of smart ways you could do that. I mean, I've always felt, you know, we've already discoursed about this in the pod, like trans listeners wrote in with their thoughts on it. Mm I do think Mystique is a character that it makes a lot of sense to do that with, but she is also very stereotypical. Yeah, like my, for my two cents on Mystique, I I feel like it's like you should do it, but that can't. She can't be, be it. She she can't be the big like ooh they're like you know they're trans like the sneaky trans person who's lying to you. Mm-mm. You should do it, but you got to have someone else, too. Um, you need, like, yeah. a, a good guy who's, like, a real good guy also, I think. I, obviously, I would love to see a trans woman, but I feel like trans men are severely underrepresented. Absolutely. One character talking about, like, you know, not necessarily a good character. Um, one character that popped into my head as seeing him as trans mask, not in the sense that he needs, well to come out that like you know he came out has been out just never told it's just never been said right um and i have been captivated with is gray crow oh that would be interesting yeah i think that like i was just thinking about like i was trying to think like what characters and i just i was flipping through hellions and i was just like oh oh shit oh that's a fun story to tell yeah, Grey Crow is a complicated one because his he history really goes so far back. He's like from the 40s. He's like, yeah. A, yeah. That's a character, if you told me I would give a shit about that character it's ever insane, in my life. Right? I mean, well, Zeb yeah. is a genius, obviously, but like yeah. that, well, a great way to get me to care about any male characters, have them become obsessed with a female character who's one of my favorites. And like, yeah. as a canon head, I love gray crow's obsession with her that doesn't feel creepy it just feels like he's like this is the most incredible person he's i've like ever pu- met yeah, in my entire like life dog. right yeah but yeah no that would be interesting i feel like actually you know from the hellions i feel like who might be interesting to do it with is wild child wild child it's that like yes but also, but also could just, play into the whole bestiality aspect fair of, i was just yeah, thinking yeah, of like yeah. the way that like, to be clear not bestiality in that sense like that he is bestial that he's is, yeah. bestial let's bestial, say yes yes yeah, no, I I get that. I just was thinking about like he already plays with gender politics in so many interesting yeah. ways and always has that that could be you know there's any the point is there's like 50 characters you could do Yeah, this like with. I think I think you could make Polaris trans. I think Havoc could absolutely like there's so many options and there's cuz these are characters that have been telling we've been telling stories of for decades and decades and decades and so from a lot of them, if you want to find the thread to pull on, it's there. It's there. Yeah. I would like to see it. Agreed. I think yeah. that it's time, and I think you should have hope, because here's the thing, and Sarah Sentry and I talk about this whenever yeah. she's on the air on this show. We're old. We are always astonished by how many LGBT characters exist 
period on the page these days. It's still not enough. It's a slow journey. When I say have hope, I'm not saying to you, I think it's going to happen next month. But what I will say is I think that fans like you have been heard. I think that there is an awareness that this is a problem. And I have hope that steps are being taken. And my hope is that whatever powers that be will understand the need and will rubber stamp something. I recently, like about a month and a half ago, um, like publicly on Twitter, I'll, I talk about, I had been pretty harshly uh, critical um, of X-Books and creative decisions um, for a bit. Um, and there were a lot of books by queer creators. Um, and I regret doing that. Um, and I have apologized and spoken to a few of them. Um, and not for criticizing, but for not understanding that all of these creators are trying their best. Mm-hmm. They want to do, they want to tell, if they could, these books would be the queerest things on the planet if they could. Right, exactly. So, you know. And, like, I feel like a lot of trans people, especially, I get it, it's hard when you don't see yourself on the page, ever. Um, and, like, especially, like, I recently reread um, Angela, the, yeah. the series, which, fantastic. Yeah, if you want to read about a trans character in a Marvel comic, that book is well worth reading. Yeah, and I love Sarah to bits, but the fact that, like, you know, we got one. We got a textually trans, Mm -hmm. and she's And she's vanished for years now. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's hard. It's hard when you get the small little victories and even they get yanked away. But there are enough incredible queer writers in that office that are trying their best and i know they're trying their best yeah that i feel like something will happen something's gonna give and yeah i just would say don't lose hope i understand that it's frustrating and i hope that you can have soon the moment that gay men had with Iceman, even though I don't give a shit about that character, but it felt like such a victory to finally get it said on the page. Yeah. It was like, holy shit, decades went into this moment. And I hope that soon that moment happens for you because it is a joyful moment. It feels yeah. good. I mean, on, on like the, the other half of my queer identity, I openly wept when I read Marauders 12. Right. And, you know, and hopefully we get some more um, payoff on that. I hope so I'm, too, yes. I also, like, you know, hope that happens and no, I don't doubt that anyone there would want that to happen. Yeah. But, uh, but like, it is a singularly special thing when you see these characters who mean so much to you, even when you, like, know in your brain these are just comic book characters. Well, the writers telling you you're not crazy yeah. to have thought this is such a, you know, like, that's, amazing like to be told like no 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 you're right this character is gay or bi or whatever is like boom like thank you it feels like being seen and i want that i want that for trans readers i was bummed when i put together the pride month to realize that there was no trans character in this franchise who met my standard which is that you need to have appeared for a full zaladane's worth of issues which is 12 issues to merit an episode of this podcast the fact that there isn't an ex character who's trans that I can point to who meets that standard bummed me it's, out. Um, yeah, it's a significant bummer. I hope that soon that won't be true anymore. Same. I do too. So many external questions, it makes me laugh. Good lord, people. 
Tim Matum writes, Hi, Connor and Zoe. Love the podcast and especially enjoy that you dive into some of the more obscure X-Men characters with just as much passion relish as when you tackle the big hitters. My Sam Guthrie question, given that he's now married to an Imperial Guardsman, do you think Sam feels awkward about so utterly handing Gladiator his ass that one time? Keep up the great work, Tim. I, <laughs> I think Sam loves it. I think Sam's just like, he he reminds him. Like, he like not, not in like, you know, publicly embarrassing for Gladiator, but just like, hey, like nods and like make sure gladiator knows what happened i think that that's a good thing for him to have also like i think it's good that izzy's husband is known to the imperial guard yeah like he's not like the earth bumpkin he is cannonball of the x-men her boss knows who that guy is and was impressed by him one time i think is good for their relationship Mm -hmm. zach wilson writes hi connor and zoe i hope you're both doing well About the Guthrie clan in general and their rotating cast of mutant siblings as the plot requires, how do y'all feel about the AOA Amazon being a thing in Age of Apocalypse but not having an explicit 616 counterpart? It's a small nitpick, but it's always bugged me a bit. Thanks so much for your hard work. Have a great day. P.S. Connor, I know this is an X-Men podcast, but... Zoe, I know you're loving DC right now. I'm loving Tynan's Batman and Joker, Infinite Frontier, and Nightwing. I'm interested in Tamaki's Tekron. The Titans are traditionally my fave team, but I didn't love Titans Academy. Do you have any recommendations of other titles you're loving right now? Thanks again and have a great day. Um, well, I mean, I'll address the DC thing. Yeah, just um, rattle them yeah. off. <laughs> I absolutely do. Um, I think the Bat books are fantastic right now, and they're actually taking a lot of cues from Krakoa and X-Men. And explicitly, Tynan has said, like, we're doing writer's rooms. We are, like... James working. loves X-Men also. Oh, yeah. So... James is wonderful. He's an angel, by the way, if you've um, never I met him. I have Listeners. no doubt. He seems I, like I'm just saying, I, he's yeah. just lovely. There are uh, quite a few, um, but specifically Titans today. I read the new um, uh, YA graphic novel, I Am Not Starfire. Mm-hmm. Best DC thing I've read this year. It was absolutely, it blew me away. Fantastic. That's Mariko Tamaki. And um, hold on, I want to make sure I get her name because the art is. Yeah, I was going to ask, who's the artist on Astounding. That? that really, like, do not miss that book. It's a YA book, but it's like, it honestly takes bigger swings than it like they say fuck in that book twice mm-hmm. um and that's a dc not that like you know ooh cussing but like it feels like a book that is ya in style in substance it is on par with anything else they have put out it's um art by yoshi yoshitani if you like laura dean keeps breaking up with me read that book it's the closest thing DC would ever put. Oh, Yoshi Yoshitani is great. They did that um, tarot deck that was so freaking gorgeous. Yeah. You should look that up if you're into tarot at all. It's like all these different gods from around the world. It's really beautiful. It is, uh, it's a uh, really just, I read it and was just astonished. Um, as for other books, uh, Catwoman by Ram V, wonderful. Crush and Lobo, um, also by Tamaki. There's like, you know, there's a bunch. DC's honestly kind of really hitting a stride right now in a big way, which i'm a big fan of but also um go back and read the dreaming waking hours we're talking about trans narratives by g willow wilson and nick robles that book is great um it's gorgeous it's but also it introduces a new trans character to the dc universe Mm -hmm. heather after who was a former apprentice of john constantine and i said constantine weird that's okay you know John Constantine is, like, down. He's that kind oh, of guy. You know what I mean? Like, he, that totally uh, tracked would, for me. I was like, yeah, obviously. Of course. <laughs> but, like, it's a it's a wonderful book. But also, like, it's, it like, you know, some part is always a bummer when it's like, oh, the cis writer gets to do it. But 
Wilson kills it. Heather After is in. I love I like that forever. character a lot. She's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and that book itself is just absolutely absolutely. It also feels like a corrective, and I think that Gaiman would agree uh-huh. to some of the trans rep that at the time in the original was, Sandman was very yeah. daring and progressive, but has and aged has aged poorly. like milk. Yeah. 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 So I think that this character being in that world is very cool. And being so hugely like the the like there there's a bit like without giving too much spoiler. It basically directly rebukes the story I'm talking about from yeah. that original run. Yeah, where she Heather after manages to defy a Fey Lord because they attempt to use her true name and she's just like, That's not my true name. You don't know anything. That's not and how now, it works. Right. Yeah, and now I'm going to wreck you. Yeah, as opposed to the way that like Thessaly yeah. was like excluding mm-hmm. in was doing sort of a bioessentialist magic thing, which again, like I think that story is very sympathetic to the trans character. The classic story, but it's just one of those things where you're like Where it's just like feels mm, bad. Feels bad. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about Amazon from the AOA, Liz oh, Guthrie? Lizzie. Easy answer. Uh, my other big X-Men blind spot, Age of Apocalypse. Oh. Don't know who that is. Okay, so here's the thing. You might enjoy it because it's a wild thing that's true. Okay. In the Age of Apocalypse, there's another Guthrie sister, huh. Elizabeth. And she and Sam are like part of the evil crew together. Her code name is Amazon and she grows... To super humans like she has like a giganta type power set huh i mean sounds cool yeah she is cool she's just never appeared outside of aoa like i think that elizabeth lizzie guthrie did appear mm. in she lies with angels but as far as we know like she's not a mutant which doesn't make sense because again like it's a split timeline so there's a couple options one is that could be your trans character actually yeah, now that i'm thinking cool. about it big fan of that Especially, what a power move to be a trans woman and take the name Amazon. Yeah, just to piggyback on that previous question, but I also think that it would be, I've thought about this before, actually. I think that a story about her mutation catalyzing when she's like 25 would be really interesting because it's generally at puberty, but not always. Yeah. Some people are obvious mutants from birth, like Nightcrawler. You also have characters like Magneto who get their powers a little bit later in the classic stuff. We've sort of moved away from that, but I think it would be interesting in the age of Krakoa to see a story about someone who thinks they're not a mutant and then realizes they are. They are, yeah. But they're already like 26 and have a job. They're a adult. Yeah. yeah, like that I think could be cool. I would be into that. I think that the problem for her is that they kept introducing Guthrie's and not her. So it was like, now we got to deal with Jay. Now we got to deal with Melody, who didn't even exist in the 80s, right? So it's like, you got to, you know, at a certain point, I think they're hesitant to just pile more on. But Mm -hmm. there aren't really a lot of like, Ant-Man type powers like no, that really in aren't. X-Men. So I think that she would be... And that's always fun to have. It's like, a cool it's power. to have a giant yeah. person that you can throw into like splash battles. Yeah. So I think yeah. she'd be fun and uh, I think they should do that at some point. I wonder if maybe there is like a rights concern with a superhero code named Amazon. Amazon, yeah. But that is... in that case, just give her a new code name. It was the yeah. AOA. Like, cool either, name, you but know, just... Not essential. Not right, yeah. yeah. Mike Smith asks... Mike from Texas here. What is Sam Guthrie's best costume? I've loved the character since his New Mutant days, but I can't think of one look that outshines all the others. Keep this podcast train of awesome running. What's your favorite? I have an opinion. Um, I So I think we're going to clash on the, this <laughs> one. Um, I have two favorites. 
I actually really like his current one. I think it's simple and clean, and I like it. I'm not going to be like, oh my god, it's a fashion, but it's just mm-hmm. like for a for a simple man like Sam, I think it works. Um, and I like the uh, Supernovas era, which is just big and chunky and. Has I love that one goggles. actually. I, yeah, I love it. My favorite, and this is weird because I'm not into the 90s aesthetic of X-Force that much, but I actually really do like that purple costume that Liefeld initially designed with the goggles. and the, When he first gets that sort of Rocketeer vibe going, I think it's cool. I think you need to update it now. Yeah, I think I think like someone doing like a riff on that would be really interesting. I like him in purple. I think it looks good with his blonde hair. Like I, I like that the Supernova's costume, it is purple. It's just very yeah. dark, so it looks black in most lighting, but sometimes when he's outside, you see that it's actually like sort of a deep plum color. I think that it's an unusual color for a male superhero to wear, yeah. and that's always cool. When someone has I a like distinctive... Purple. Purple's a cool color. Purple's my favorite color, so I'm I always have, pro... I have purple nails purple. right now. So. I mean, I said to Jerry, I was like, I love Polaris's new look, but I wish it was that witchy purple she wears sometimes <laughs> when she's feeling feisty. I love that one on him. I do like the Supernova's one because it felt like an update... Yeah. Of that aesthetic. I feel like the the key is you got to have the goggles. That's the thing. And it's like, what do they do? They don't do anything. Here's the thing about Sam. They just look cool. We haven't mentioned this yet, but Sam, one of the things that Claremont establishes about him very early is that he's a huge sci-fi fan. He's like a big nerd. And every bit of spare cash that they have on this farm that's not going to feeding everybody clearly goes to like him going down to the drive-in to watch whatever. And so it makes total sense that he would adopt like a pulp hero sci-fi signifier for to his costume. And I, if I remember right, Hickman does bring that back when like he goes to space with Izzy and he's mm-hmm. just like, oh, hot damn. Yeah, that's the other reason it's yeah. cool to have him in space. Like this is his yeah. dream. In the Claremont stuff, he's constantly explicitly referencing like classic sci-fi novels, mm-hmm. short stories, movies. So like it's it's something that he loves. Yeah. I actually, I didn't mind, I thought it was a little pedestrian by comparison for me. Like it didn't, it looked just like clothes rather than a superhero, but the US uh, Avengers look yeah, he that just was has sort of like, like a, a rocketeer thing, that yeah. was cute. Like again, it looks cool. I actually yeah. really liked his gala look. I feel like it didn't push did it too. far enough for the gala for me, but I thought it would actually be a good cannonball costume if you just let outfit. him wear it. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Lee writes, Dear Cerebro, I love listening to your podcast and I'm glad you're doing both Sunspot and Cannibal back to back. Looking forward to your episode on Jubilee next month. Let's say I will have a lot of thoughts and questions. Oh boy. These are my questions about Samuel Guthrie. Do you think X-Force, in spite of the Liefeld element, was actually the best thing that happened to Cannonball as a character? Because arguably he's the main protagonist of early X-Force, especially when Niciesa fully takes over with developments like his father-son relationship with Cable. Also, how do you feel about his marriage to Smasher. Do you feel that it's earned or not? In conclusion, I'm looking forward to this episode and many more to come. Regards, Jimmy Jonathan Lee. So, to answer the second part first, I do think you alluded to this earlier. I do think that yeah. the Smash relationship is a little rushed. It's rushed specifically because, um, and we know Hickman has talked about this, where he had to do the time skip. Yes, there's a time jump. And he, he that was not part of his Not something plan. he wanted to do. It's just, yeah. yeah. And so they they start dating. They are in a relationship pre-time jump. And then it jumps ahead. And Izzy, I can't remember if Izzy has had the baby or is pregnant. I think she's pregnant because that's when she leaves and is like, don't yeah. follow me. And then he follows her and it's like, oh, because you're pregnant. and You didn't want me yeah. to be stuck in space with you. Yep. 
And it's, like, I feel like it definitely is hurt by the fact that their, like, progression from, like, oh, this is a cute couple to, like, oh, they are, like, together forever. Yeah. Being entirely off page um, sucks. That does suck. I do think, though, having read more of them together now, I think it works. They're sweet. I like them. They're a cute couple. It's very Battlestar Galactica, the jump from season two to season three. There's a two-year time skip there. If you've never watched that show, sorry for the spoiler alert if you're listening, but it's an old show at this point. Great show. A couple different relationships start up right before that time jump and then are very established once the time jump is over. A couple of them work really, really well. A couple of them do not. And I think that it could have very easily not worked, but it does. But whether it's earned, that sort of like a your mileage may vary thing. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, I like there is no relationship in X-Men more rushed than Scott and Madeline's courtship in From the Ashes. And I actually think that works very well. Yeah, it does. Until it doesn't, obviously. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> you know, I think that for what it was, it works very, very well. This is like that. It's like we're we're doing this for a purpose and we're getting to the story. And her appearance in New Mutants where like she gets to interact with the X-Men stuff. Yes, and with his friends. That was key. Yeah, and like she just knows, like she no-sells uh, Beto. She's just like, I know you, you're an idiot. Right. I'm not putting up with your shit. And then everyone else is just like, she's mean. I like her. I like her, yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, where she goes now. And the thing is, like, it was always an awkward fit to have the Shi'ar Imperial Guard character in an Avengers book to begin with. So, like, she belongs in X-Men stuff. The Shi'ar and X-Men thing. Yeah. So I'm excited to see where she goes now that Hickman is actually doing X-Men cosmic stuff. Because I think that they work. I don't know that earned is how I would necessarily, like... It's justified by the narrative being good. <laughs> yeah, and she and Izzy specifically, I think, is in a very niche of like very tough, very confident, very unafraid to call people on their shit woman that is thriving right now. So I think she would fit in well. I would love to see her and Lila interact now that Lila's on the sword yeah. station. I think that could be fun. Yeah. As for your other question, I do think that X Force was the best thing that could have happened to Cannonball because. He was always second fiddle to Danny in New Mutants. And it's undeniable that in the 90s, he becomes one of the main characters of the franchise. And while I'm not crazy about X-Force as a book overall, I do think that it repositioned him in a way that was very, very good for the character. I'm not sure that in the end, because like the real best thing that ever happened to him was we've decided this is the character who's graduating to the Mm X-Men. And then that only blasted so far so to speak yeah and i like i i've only read a chunk of the actual like x-force era but it's hard to argue that like you know that's where he became cannonball yeah like it's a promotion yeah so like i there are stories i value more personally but i mean that's definitely like integral to the character exactly that's i would agree Brian Houston asks, hello, Connor and Zoe. Do you think there's a tendency for the leaders of the newer generations of X-Kids to undergo a lot of character regression, specifically their position and competency as leaders once they joined the larger X-Men teams? In Sam's case, he effectively became infantilized when he first joined the X-Men in the 90s, despite a lot of groundwork being laid in Nicias's X-Force, making him out to be the next great leader of mutant kind. If it was just Sam, I wouldn't complain about it much. But you think that one of the team leaders from New Mutants, Generation X, the new X-Men, or the Jean Grey School would transition into to a leadership position within the X-Men proper, but it just hasn't happened. Thanks. I think you're absolutely right. I think that it is frankly absurd 
and I'll take it in the current situation because Vita's writing the absolute hell out of them. But the fact that Danny and Sean have been stuck in like student it's, limbo. It's, for, it's yeah. bizarre. They should be full X-Men. They should be leading X-Men teams. Like yeah. it doesn't make sense. I think Monet is the exception, particularly right now with X. Yeah, Monet has graduated. Monet has graduated to the point where she can be in a book with Angel, who is two generations above her. And it does actually three three generations above her, if you count the second Genesis team as a new generation. And yeah, they feel like peers in that book. She's a little younger than him. He has the I get angry and turn into a monster thing a little bit more under control. But she's like just as competent as he is, knows what she's doing and is treated with respect on the same playing field. Yeah. But she's kind of it. Yeah, she's the uh, she is by far like the biggest success story of any student class of X-Men. I guess actually Kate is another one. But weird, Kate was though. never really allowed to be part of a student class. She was yeah, always she, she like was a, the junior she was a sidekick of the team. Of the team. Yeah. yeah. So it's not quite the same thing. Whereas, yeah, you see a lot of regression with characters like Husk, with characters like Cannonball, with characters like Danny. With Danny, it's just honestly, she was on that path and then they decimated her and she got completely screwed. And, and then she became like the most competent, terrifying team leader. Yeah, well, Zeb Wells fixed yeah. it. Oh, as God, he I so often that. does. I mean, yep. he's very good at pulling a character out of the garbage and going like, I can save them. I have the technology. Yep. We can rebuild them. I think what's weird sometimes is you see a character like Magic getting a lot of leadership opportunities that I don't think she necessarily deserves purely because she's very, very popular. Yeah. That's comics, baby. Like, there's only so much you can do, right? But I wouldn't call her, like, a natural leader. No, like, like I heard you, I was listening to an episode and you were like, I, Magic getting war captain over, over Danny, Danny doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. But yeah, and I love... I love Ileana to death. I will. Die she's for her. a favorite of mine. It's yeah, just like, but she's she's, she's not, not a leader. A leader. No. no, she is a fighter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing she's ever been even relatively good at leading is a hell dimension full of demons who she leads by kicking the shit out of them until they listen to her. Like that's yeah. that's her mode. You know. Hashtag girl boss. Yeah. Exactly. I think that there is often that compulsion to regress them because of the sliding time scale, because they can never age too much, or you start getting the awkward questions of how old is this character supposed to be, which I get all the time in this email account. And my answer is always as old as the writer wants them to be, because there's no logic to it that you can actually suss out. Yeah. So it's hard for them to develop. And that's why once you have a character like Sam sort of complete the arc as he has done, that's why so many people are like, well, what do you do with this character now? Because you don't want to regress him again. Because it's happened so many times. Right. Like, mm. There's a path forward. But I think that it's going to have to be a dramatically new direction. Mm-hmm. And I do think that after the Zebwells run, he no longer really feels a desire to lead Yes, I, I agree. He's he's gotten like, that out of his head. He's like, you know what? I'm not that guy, and that's okay. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of how I feel the character. Oh my like. god! I do saying that made me realize. Oh my, Sam Guthrie is the Ted Lasso of the X Men. <laughs> Shit. 
Last question. Dave Katzen writes, Hi, Connor and Zoe. One question I've had about Sam for a while now is about the loss of much of his original narrative tension in his character arc, namely the push and pull between his responsibility both to his family and to the mutant community as a hero. He was a boy who was willing to take his father's place in the mines in order to provide for the rest of his large and amusingly inconsistent family. But over the years, we've seen his concerns for his family fade away almost completely. As a character who's driven so much by a sense of responsibility to those around him, it seems so odd for that original core familial duty to fall so completely completely off the map. Were his family's concerns handled off panel? Did Ma Guthrie score a really good job after her younger kids were old enough for her to re-enter the workforce? Is Hubbard of course just secretly funneling the money? Did Ma Guthrie sue and win big against Xavier when the Hanks McCoy killed one of her kids for science? Thanks, Dave. So I think that part of this is about a character growing up because his obligation is now to his wife and his child. family. Like his family, yeah. not to the family he was born into because at a certain point, you have your own family mm. if you're the kind of person who has kids, right? I think, again, that the character to do this with is Paige. Yeah. She's only, like, two years younger than him. And even even then, like, the Guthrie's, like, when Apocalypse is saying, like, ah, yes, the Guthrie's a proud mutant name. Yeah. Like, the Guthrie's can live on Krakoa. It's yeah, it doesn't fine. really, there's no yeah. good reason for Ma Guthrie not to be invited to Krakoa, and I think yeah. she should be, actually. Yeah. I'm hoping that in the wake of the gala, we're going to see more humans. Mm-hmm. At the very least, in the most recent issue of New Mutants, I liked that Vita answered the question a lot of people have had about minors on Krakoa, which is that, yeah. like, they say to the mother of this newly manifested mutant who is a child, she is allowed to stay here with you. If she would like to train, we have given you a gate. If you want someone to accompany her as a chaperone, let us know beforehand and we will approve one of you to come through with her to stay with her while she's training and then come back with her when she's done. That answers a lot of the questions we've had about like, what's the deal with these kids, right? If nothing else, the Make More Mutants law ought to earn Ma Guthrie. Yeah, she's like the patron saint. She really ought yeah. to, ha- like, Lucinda ought to have her own house on Krakoa yeah. that's like a mansion where people come to her and, like, ask about their, like, mutant fertility problem. Like, I, you know, because she's got that whole situation handled. Yeah. She's only got one non-mutant among the whole crop. So, you know. So far. As far as we like, know. That, that kid, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense at a certain point, especially because you talked about the story where his mother says to him, like, where he's like, I have to come back and take care of all of you. And she's like, mm-hmm. actually, no, that's the last thing I want. I want you to go live your life. You've done enough. And I don't want you to waste your life away taking care of us. So he was given permission, essentially, to like be his own man. And yeah. I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I do think, again, that if you want a character to get at those tensions, Paige, as a character who's never quite found a niche for herself after Gen X, is the character that I think you could do that with. And also, beyond that, Paige doesn't have a best friend who is a billionaire. Like, Right. The idea that Sam couldn't just go, hey, Beto, could you, like, give my mom, like, 500 grand? And honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if at some point Hickman does a throwaway line in there that says that Beto just did pay off all of the Guthrie's debts or whatever. And like, we just don't worry about it. Like that Mm -hmm. could also be a perfectly fine. It's like, oh, we handled that years ago. And that's why you haven't seen the farm in a while. You know, right? Well, Zoe, do you have anything else you want to say about Cannonball before we start to wrap? Um, He's my sweet boy. I love him. Uh, he, uh, is my son. (laughs) Um, and he's good. 
That's it. That's all I got. Well, that is a great summation. Thank you so much for being my guest. This was a lot of fun. Why don't you tell the listeners about anything you want to plug and then where to follow you online? Well, um, I do comics criticism and like essays and such at uh, various sites. Uh, recently did a review for Polygon. Um, I write at Comics XF, uh, WAC, Women Writing About Comics. I've recently uh, started writing comics um, with art by friend of the show, Valentine Smith. We've done a few ex-house party, uh, the Hellfire mm-hmm. Gala. Um, the pre-party, pre-game. yeah, yep. the pre-game. Um, uh, we're going to be doing a few more of those. Um, we've got, I've got some scripts written for, uh, you might see, uh, we, we've done a lot of sapphic content because that's <laughs> where my expertise lies, but, you know, we might see Prodigy and Speed, what they're up to at that party, mm-hmm. or perhaps, uh, Jimmy Proudstar and Colossus, who knows? Well, that would be fun to me personally. But, um, <laughs> we're also, um, we're also, we're not ready to like talk talk about it but we're doing an original um story very that we're cool going to try and make something you could potentially purchase with money very very cool yeah uh and uh you can find me on twitter at blankzilla uh and that's it i don't have any other social media so well that is that then i think that you're doing exciting work i'm excited to see where this takes you because you. you know you got to put the work out there to get the cred right yeah i'm in the same boat frankly you know like yeah it's, no, like... <laughs> it's, it's it is wild and scary but hey i wrote a comic that's cool that's cool yeah you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes as well as a link to the Cerebro Fan Discord and the merch store at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Please join us in the Discord. Join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. Next week's episode will feature Kendra James returning from her guest appearance on the Monet episode, who will be here to talk about Sync formerly of Gen X, then dead for a gazillion years, and now part of Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larath's new X-Men team. I am excited about that because this is a character that a lot of people don't know anything about because, again, he was dead for like 30 years. Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you. There are some bonus episodes rolling out. Thanks for your patience while my bar mitzvah stuff got handled. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast for $5 at the House of Zaladane level. You can receive access instantly to these Cerebro secret files. The next three, I can tell you, I am doing an AMA that's going to be fun. The second AMA, we did one at the very beginning of the Patreon, and a lot of you have sent in really fun questions. I am also going to break down Chris Claremont's new Days of Future Past prequel story from the Marvel Made Paragon collection, and uh, it's a wild ride. I actually, gotta be honest, kind of liked it. Yeah, it's very bloody best heavy, but... uh, I personally find that funny. So I didn't Yeah, mind. The, what a claim on me to make. <laughs> it's like, yes, retcon bloody Bess and Sage into Days of Future Past, Chris. I knew you wanted to. And then the third uh, bonus currently in the hopper that like these will be rolling out hopefully in the next like week and a half will be a full bonus episode on Victoria Montesi, Marvel's first lesbian hero with oh, Sarah yeah. Century. I'm really excited about that episode. I love Vicky Montesi. She's a character I would love to write. Thank you, as always, for listening, and until next time, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, 
People Mutants, led by Magneto. 